With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome to the program. As you can tell by our set, it is, of course, Independence Day, or at least, you know, a couple days before Independence Day. Actually, fun fact, it is July the 2nd. This is actually the day that Thomas Jefferson penned the Declaration of Independence. Now, it wasn't signed and, and revised and ratified and, and sent off until the 4th, and that's the date that really counts, and that's why we celebrate Independence Day on the 4th. But today is the, I guess, first draft day might be a good way to describe it. So thank you so much for being with us here on the program. We're certainly thrilled to have you. And we have a lot of things coming up to celebrate the 245th birthday of these United States of America. We're pretty stoked about it. And as you can tell, like we've redone the entire studio in red, white, and blue. And so this is something, and by the way, uh, you know, I usually use a fake background for those of you who were unaware of that, but uh, this stuff is, is real. So like this Declaration of Independence, that's that's my real copy of the Declaration of Independence I bought from the National Archives building. That shield back there, that is a real Captain America shield that I have. Uh, it usually hangs in my living room, but I moved it in here today. So as you can tell, I'm really, really stoked about the 4th of July. It is my favorite holiday. And so we're going to be doing a lot of really fun things for this. First of all, coming up, we have an interview with Dr. Mark Call, who is a professor at George Fox University. He's a professor of political science, and he wrote the book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? And so we'll be talking to him coming up in just a little bit. We also have the top 20 most American songs. It's, it's technically a top tw 10, but I did 10 of them as honorable mentions because there's so many great American songs out there. And so there, we actually have 20 songs to count down and rank them all in order for you to enjoy. That's coming up right after that interview. And then we have a, a special chaplain's report today called God's Country. And it does deal with God and his relationship with us. And this is all because our theme of this year, you remember we do different themes based on different years. Last year we did equality, for example. This year, the theme that we are going to be focusing on is the Christian heritage of America. And so the influence that Judeo-Christian principles, the gospel, uh, all of those things played into our country and their influence is vast and it is very self-evident if you've ever studied this era in history. So we're going to be focusing on that. We're going to be focusing on how the faith of the founding fathers influenced their ideas and, and how it sort of influenced them to create the greatest, freest country in the history of mankind. And so we're going to be focusing on that as well. One quick note before we dive in to the material, though, I did want to give a shout out and a congratulations to the Mississippi State Bulldogs for winning the national championship, winning the College World Series. This is their first national championship ever in any sport. And so congratulations to the Mississippi State Bulldogs. I know it may seem a little odd, me being a Alabama politics guy, congratulating them. 
it's because my brother and sister attend Mississippi State University and they're an ag school. And so being an ag major myself and an ag guy, you know, I always kind of pull for the land grant institutions, but Mississippi State, you know, baseball is super important to them. A lot of people don't realize this. Their stadium is actually, I believe, about 13,000 in capacity, which is roughly double what Riverwalk Stadium here in Montgomery is. And so they have a stadium that's almost double the stadium of the minor league baseball team here in Montgomery. And so uh, that just kind of emphasizes what a big deal this is to them. Baseball is their big sport that everybody goes crazy over there that they tailgate for. And this is their very first one. And so kudos to the Bulldogs. Hill State, and I really hope that my brother and sister are enjoying this. I'm sure that they are. They've already talked to me and talked about how excited they are about it. So just that one quick note I wanted to talk about first. But let's actually get into the material for today. Let's look at the Christian influence on the Declaration of Independence, because that is, of course, what we celebrate on July the 4th. We are celebrating the fact that 56 patriots came together to sign the Declaration of Independence, which stated essentially that all of our political ties to the British crown, to England, are heretofore forever severed. We are now a free state. We can do everything that a free state can do. You have no jurisdiction over us anymore. We are now independent. And I think that that's significant in a number of ways because, first of all, think about it. We celebrate this country's birthday on July 4th, 1776, when we signed that declaration. We don't celebrate it on the day that we formed our constitution. We don't celebrate it on the day that we elected our first president because America is not about that. This spirit of freedom and the idea to chart your own course and command your own ship, and in other words, sort of make your own destiny as it were, is something that is so ingrained into the American psyche that it is inseparable from the heart of an American. And that is the reason that we celebrate this day as opposed to one that might be more official in a sense, because it's not about what's official. It's about what we are actually, when we actually declared, no, no, we're going to make our own decisions from now on. We are going to govern ourselves. And that assertion, even before its actual realization, when we, we won the Revolutionary War, that assertion is something that we got to determine. And so on the day that we declared it, not the day that everybody else recognized it, on the day that we declared that we are independent, that is the day that we celebrate. And so I think that it's important and significant that we celebrate that day as opposed to, say, when we won the Revolutionary War or when we ratified the Constitution or whatever else it may be. It wasn't about the formation of a country in the legal sense. It was about the formation of a people in the sense that we decided we are going to do things our own way from now on. And that was what was most important to our founders. Now, looking at the Christian influences of that declaration. The Declaration is only 1,338 words long, and if you copy and paste it, it's roughly two and a half-ish pages. Now, that's a little bit offset by the part that, uh, by, by the part that um, when they go into the list of grievances, some of those are, are very short, and they may only be a couple of words long, and so they kind of create their own paragraph and take up a lot of space despite not having a lot of words, but you know, 1,300 words roughly, not a lot of words. And if you were to condense it into more succinct paragraphs, it actually would be closer to two pages. So this thing is very brief. I mean, you can you can see the entire thing right back there. That's all of it on the Declaration of Independence that I have sitting behind me. And you can see right, right there, there's just not a lot of writing. I mean, that's what, two-thirds of the page because the other third is taken up by the headings and the signatures and that kind of thing. And so this is not a super long document. 
And yet it is one of the most significant documents. In fact, I would say that it is the document other than scripture itself that has caused more men to be free than any other document in human history. Now, the founders were coming up with this on their own and they were influenced by the scripture, but you know, they can't compete with the word of God. So they, they understood that. But I mean, when you, when the Bible's first place, second place ain't doing too bad. You know what I'm saying? So their influence on this was incredibly profound. And you have to remember that in this short little document right here, there are four separate references to God. Now, in those four separate direct references, you have to also remember that in Thomas Jefferson's original draft, there was a fifth. And if you happen to watch our episode from last year, where we talked about equality, you will know that that fifth reference actually comes when Thomas Jefferson is actively mocking King George for daring to call himself a Christian monarch while he is endorsing slavery and perpetuating it. And so I do think it's hilarious that the fifth one that was actually taken out of the final draft of the Declaration of Independence, uh, if you were to insert that back in, where it talks about Jefferson being so against slavery and slavery being one of the reasons that they were separating from England, that that fifth reference comes back when you reinsert that portion of the Declaration of Independence. But it didn't make it into the final draft, and so the final draft only has four. We're going to look at each of those four references to God and talk about the influence and what it means to have them in the declaration here today. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and dive into this. First of all, there is a claim that has been very popular, and I was taught it in public school just like probably everybody else in my generation within the sound of my voice. This was a very popular sort of standard issue line that we were taught about the founders. We were always taught about them, that they were a bunch of deists. That they were not Christians, they were really deeply secularist, they, they weren't really influenced by the scripture. That is a load of bunk, and it is something that has been perpetuated by the academic left because they don't want us to know that our founders, that were such great men and created such a great country, were also Christians. Now, on the left, they've kind of changed strategies a little bit here because in recent years, it's been less about, no, no, no the, the founders weren't Christian. It's been more about, no, the founders were Christians, and that's bad because they were all a bunch of evil racists. See, that's been the direction they've been trying to take it because they know they cannot bring down the country unless they sever the relationship between the American people and our founders. If they can and cause us to no longer reverence the founders, if they can cause us to no longer think of our founders in the correct light, and, and by that light I mean historically accurate depictions of the greatness that they, they were actually able to effect, they know that if they can break down that relationship, that they will, in effect, have won the battle. They will be able to completely remake the country. In, in the past, they knew because Americans had such a deep abiding reverence for our founders that it was impossible to sever that relationship. And so what they wound up doing was saying, oh, no, no you should have reverence for the founders. They were truly great men. But by the way, they were also a bunch of atheists and deists and secularists, and, and you should separate yourself from the scripture just like they did. And in recent years, it's transitioned more to the thing that I just talked about. Well, you shouldn't reverence them at all. And that's because we're moving the, the, the ball further down the football field, as it were. But I say all of that to say, this is a very common myth that has been perpetuated, especially for people in my generation that think, 
uh, yeah, some of the founders may have had some religious influence, but especially the the most influential ones, they really didn't have any deep abiding religious belief. They were all a bunch of Enlightenment age secularists. Well, they were Enlightenment age, but they were not secularist in any stretch of the imagination. And here's the proof. The proof is in the pudding. So if you will go ahead and take a look at this, we know that there are 56 signers of the declaration and there's about 200 people that are considered founding fathers. Uh, that goes into people that were instrumental in getting the war effort going, people that were in the Sons of the Confederacy, like Samuel Adams, that never actually uh, served in any official capacity, but he was one of the leading voices. You also have some people like Thomas Paine. So there's about 200 people, but for the purposes of today, and since we are celebrating the Declaration of Independence, let's look at the 56 signers of the Declaration. 28 of them were Episcopalians. That has a, a little bit of distinction, but they would have been largely Episcopalians, people that were in the either Episcopalian or Anglican tradition from England. There were eight Presbyterians. There were seven Congregationalists. There were two Lutherans. There were two Dutch Reformed. There were two Methodists. There were two Roman Catholics. One unknown, we don't really know a whole lot about his religious background, two Deists, and Ben Franklin. And you may look at that and go, what, Ben Franklin gets his own category? Well, if you know the history there, you understand why Ben Franklin kind of gets his own category. It's kind of a weird thing, I admit. But the thing is, Benjamin Franklin was not only his own man and, and such a deep thinker that he didn't really conform to a lot of the orthodox beliefs or really any belief system, but like most of us, the man changed over time. It's true that a young Ben Franklin was indeed a deist. In fact, he self-proclaimed that he was a deist. He was born into a religious family. He eventually became a deist in his years in school. But the thing is, we see from his writings, especially his later writings like Poor Richard's Almanac, we see some of his speeches that he gave. This man was not a deist by the time that he came around to sign the Declaration of Independence. In fact, you might remember that despite being one of the least religious of all of the founders, it is he, and we've read this speech before, like on Constitution Day, it is he out of all the founders that called for the providence of God to come down and intervene so that it might guide them in the writing of the Constitution of the United States of America. First of all, since he was calling for prayer, that automatically disqualifies him as a deist because deists don't believe in prayer. They, they believe that God essentially makes the world, makes the universe, and then steps back and doesn't intervene at all, has no relationship with mankind, nothing. He just kind of winds up the watch and then just lets things play out. But that's not what Franklin espoused, because if you believed that, why would you pray? pray prayer would do absolutely no good if that were the case. And then you also notice that he talks about if we don't rely on providence, and we'll see that actually in the declaration as well, then we're not going to be able to get this thing off the ground. He actually said, if a sparrow cannot fall from heaven without God's notice, can we believe that an empire can rise without his consent? So essentially saying that God does directly involve himself in the affairs of man. In fact, that speech starts out with the line, the older I get, the more convinced I am that God rules in the affairs of men. And so this is somebody that is not just a deist. He's the direct opposite of a deist. He believes very strongly in divine providence. And so I know that was a long explanation for just one of the, the signers, but that's who Ben Franklin was. Like a lot of this, his beliefs changed over time. He was a deist at one time, 
But by the time he gets to the signing of the declaration, he had a lot more orthodox Christian beliefs, especially the belief that God intervenes directly with us. And so you look at all of that, that's pretty crushing evidence. The idea that these were all deists, I mean, that would be what, 93, 95% of the people that signed the document out of the 56, you've only got two that were actually deists and one that we just don't know about. That's not a bunch of deists, guys. I mean, by, by anybody's definition, that is not even coming close to, you know, most. But anyway, when we look at the, let's get into the actual text of the document. Let's look at some of the things that this document actually says. So let's go ahead and look at the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now look at this. Laws of nature and nature's God. The, the, laws, that, the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. So, what is the assertion that is being made here in the Declaration of Independence? It's fairly self-evident, right? That's, that's actually the case that it's making is that it is self-evident that the things that we are talking about, that, that mankind has certain rights, is something that should be obvious to everyone. It is saying that those rights are both pre-existing and universal. In other words, rights are not something that are conveyed upon you as you get older or hit some kind of milestone or get some kind of life achievement, that, that's not a thing that happens. And it's also not that other people or government grant these rights to you. What is happening here is that your rights exist because you are a human being. You are an image bearer of God. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But the thing that it's saying here is these rights are both pre-existing and they're universal. So every person has them. All people are created equal, and the laws of nature and nature's God entitle you to these things. In other words, they can't be taken away from you. We as a government are not able to remove those rights from you. You had them upon your creation, and you will continue to have them throughout the remainder of your natural life. These rights belong to you. They cannot be taken away, and it is wrong for governments, in this case the government of England, to violate them in any way. And so it's setting the table here. It's saying these rights are pre-existing and they're universal, which means we have those rights, you have those rights. We're not trying to make the case that Americans are better people than the British. We're saying that everyone is equal. Therefore, it is wrong for you to treat us the way you have been treating us. You have gone beyond your righteous purview and the duties that God has given to you as a government. And so that's exactly what is going on in this particular part of the Declaration. They're trying to establish that these rights are pre-existing. They're given to us by God. They're not given by the king. They're given by God. And they extend to every single person, us, you, everybody else. So that's the first assertion. And another thing too, there is some intentional vagueness here because obviously there is a reference to God where it talks about nature's God. And a lot of people would say, though, well, if they were all a bunch of Christians, why wouldn't they just say Jesus Christ? Or why wouldn't they say the Christian God? Well, they made it vague intentionally. And they wanted to make it universal because they're talking about universal rights. 
So when they say nature's God, that may just be a flowery way of saying, uh, another way of saying the Christian God, but it's saying anybody that believes in God should believe this. This is something that anybody that has any kind of faith should be able to get on board with. And here's another claim that they make. They include two provisos there. It's nature's God, but it's also the laws of nature. So you don't just have to go to divine revelation to be able to get these things. You can also get this using a strictly rationalist perspective, kind of the uh, Plato-Aristotle kind of school of thought, that the world is observable and we can observe moral truth. This is a Platonic idea. We can observe and derive moral truth from observing nature. So, you know, there's a, a lot of different ways that you could bring that up, but you could, you could kind of, uh, you know, in, in observing nature, let's look at it this way. If you were to uh, see two wolves and one wolf has a piece of meat that it went out and it, it, you know, killed the deer or something, and it's eating this piece of meat and another wolf comes by, tries to take the meat from him, and the wolf that originally caught the deer kills the other wolf, whose fault is that? It's the wolf that attacked the other wolf that tried to take meat from him that he had earned. So that's the right of property, which Thomas Jefferson talks about in his original draft. And so it's saying these laws are things that are observable in nature. That if you're looking at some kind of morality, now, of course, I, as a Christian, I believe that divine revelation is the only way to get the, the truest form of moral truth. But he's saying that these basic rights, these self-evident rights, these are ones that you can observe just by observing the laws of nature. You don't even need religion to get there. But of course, God reasserts those things and gives life to them in his divinely revealed word. But he's saying you can observe these things even in nature. That's how obvious and self-evident they are. And England has violated those basic principles. And I think that it's important that we bring up that he says they're separate and equal station. Well, what does that mean? Let's bring it up real quick. When he says there in the text, and assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. So why separate and equal station? This is a couple of different philosophical concepts sort of rolled into one. The first one is that equality, because it talks about equal, but it's individualism above all. It's saying that each person has these rights. They are individual. They are, they are universal, but they apply to each individual. They don't apply to societies. It's not like, okay, you have rights as Americans, but as, as one individual, you, you don't have any rights. No, it's not saying that. It's saying that they have an equal and separate station, which means as each individual, you have rights. And that's something that you know the modern left kind of denies. They think of this sort of communal rights, and we as the the black community or the gay community or the uh, the oppressed community, whatever it may be, uh, we have certain rights. No, no, you don't. You have rights as individuals. Now, those other things shouldn't be a factor in whether or not you have rights, because as the Declaration states, these rights are universal. But what I'm saying here is 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 they they focus so much on the community aspect of it. But that's not what the Declaration does. It focuses on the individual. It's saying we as a group of individuals are having our individual rights oppressed by England. That's the reason we have to sever this bond. And so with the separate but equal station, it's saying that, that each person has this separate and equal station. That they are an individual in the sight of God. That they're going to be judged only on what they 
do, not what everybody else does, not as a group, none of that. But it's also an equal station, so we're all equally valuable in God's side. And so that's exactly what it's talking about. It's the ultimate form of individuality, in a sense. And you have to keep in mind, too, that when we're talking about where these Christian influences come into, and, and they, they cite it right there, they say this comes directly from nature's God. This is a uniquely Judeo-Christian concept. Individuality is something that really starts and ends with them. And the reason I say that, and I've studied a lot of religions of the Near East and, and other places in the world my entire life. And, you know, some skeptics, some critics of Christianity or Judaism, they will point out some of the similarities in it and other religions and try to point that as an excuse as to saying why, well, they're not, they're not really that unique. They weren't really coming up with anything new. The concept of individualism is extremely new. Because if you look at all the surrounding religions of the Jews and you look at all the religions that predate Judaism, and I, I mean that going back before the time of Abraham, that kind of thing, it's all tribal. It's all idol worship. And it's all about, well, this is the God of our tribe. This is the God of our piece of land. This is the God of our nation. And it's better than your God because you have your own God of your own nation. The, the Jewish tradition got rid of all of that. It says there is one God. He's the creator of the entire earth. He owns the entirety of the world. He created the first man, and thus all people belong to him. It created a special bond between God and the Jews, but he's still the God of everywhere else too. And on, on top of that, it was really the first religion to emphasize individualism, because if there is one God that I'm accountable to, I'm accountable to him as a person, not as a collective. We see this very early on in the, Tor uh, the Torah, where it talks about you can't put people to death in Deuteronomy for the sins of their father or the sins of their mother or people they're related to or their tribe or whatever else it is. Can't do that. They're only accountable for their individual sins. And that is something that was completely unheard of in the ancient world. People were either punished or rewarded by gods as a community. If the community had done what the God wanted, they would send rain to make the crops grow. I mean, obviously the God wasn't really doing that, but that's how the pagans of the time interpreted that. It was all community. It was not about the individual. It wasn't about what you individually did for the God. It was all about your community and your tribe. If this is something that I was actually writing a term paper on not too long ago, there was a thing called the blood feud that existed in the ancient Near East. And the way that that worked is you would have... For example, if, if a member of your tribe killed a slave in another tribe, they wouldn't come after you. They would come after your tribe and they would say, okay, you killed one of our slaves. We will now kill one of your slaves or you must kill one of your slaves so that the injury to your tribe is the same as the injury to our tribe. See, they didn't see you as an individual. They saw your tribe as having done something wrong and your tribe must pay the price by losing something of equal value as the tribe that is accusing you lost. And so everything before that is all about tribes, community, and then Judeo-Christian principles come along and say, no, no, individualism. People are equal. God loves all of us. He made all of us. He cares about all of us, but he cares about us as individuals, not just giant groups. And that is something that the Judeo-Christian principle, the Judeo-Christian tradition created that principle very early on, and that is something that comes directly from that line of thinking that we're seeing here espoused in the Declaration of Independence. 
Now, let's go ahead and look at the next one. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You'll notice here, endowed by their creator. And so this is really just sort of giving another reference to the concept that they were just talking about a second ago, where ultimately what goes on here is they are endowed by their creator. These rights come directly from God. They don't come from a government. They don't come from your group. They come from God to you as an individual. And so the fact that these are coming from God, they're about to make the case that the king is violating those rights that came directly from your relationship with God, came directly from, they are the effect of you being a child of God created in his image. And that's the thing that is important to understand here. That is the doctrine that this assertion is rooted in. The reason that we are equal is because we're all really great people and we do really good things. Nope, that ain't it. In fact, the founders were very emphatic about the fact they didn't believe that. They believed that humans were not angels. That they believed that human nature was sinful and wrathful and not a good thing. And that's the reason that they have checks and balances when they write the Constitution about a decade later. When they put that in, they put in specifically checks and balances because they know that people that inhabit the halls of power are not going to be good people. They don't assume, like monarchies do, that the kings are going to be God-ordained and because of that they're going to be benevolent and good people and we should trust them with unlimited power. The people that wrote the Constitution and the people that penned the Declaration of Independence believed the exact opposite of that. They believed people were kind of rotten and God was good. Therefore, your value, the fact that you were created equal, comes not from what you do, it comes from what you are. It comes from who you are. And that is, you are a child of God created in his image. Doesn't mean you can't do bad things, doesn't mean you don't often do bad things and fall short of his glory, but it does mean we have to treat people equal, we have to treat people as valuable, not because of what they've done or because they're so good, but because of whose child they are. This is a uniquely Christian idea. And ultimately, that's the reason that we have these rights that are supposed to be defended in the first place, is because God created us. He wove those inborn, unalienable rights into our being at creation when he knitted us together in our mother's womb. Because of that, we as the government have no right to say to God, no, 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 that person shouldn't have rights. Nope, that's, that's not our privilege. That's up to God. God's the one that put that in place. We as a government are not allowed to say to that person, you no longer have rights now. We're not allowed to violate those rights unless they pose some kind of danger or they're violating the rights of another person. And so the individual rights are paramount here because God created us. He created us, he created us equal, and he created us with these rights. Therefore, since they were given to them by God, we as human beings can't take them away from them. And that's exactly what the British government was trying to do to the American colonists. And that's why they were saying, you have violated your duty to God, your duty that God gave you as a governing authority by violating these rights. And that's really where this idea comes from. And the idea of individual rights is just impossible without Jewish monotheism, like I was just talking about. Back in the day, it was all tribes. 
when you transition to Judaism, it's an individual God that makes every single person. See, under tribal gods, you didn't have that because let's just say there was a tribe out there that believed that God did grant you your rights. Okay, well, you would have only granted those rights to the people that were in the tribe because it would be a tribal God. Until you have universal Jewish monotheism, and then, of course, that eventually gives rise to Jesus Christ, which gives rise to Christianity, without that tradition, you cannot get to this point. The idea that God created everybody and created them equal. And not to get too far off on a tangent here, but all the things that we're dealing with right now with race, this solves that. This is the antidote to all of that. It says God created one race. He created Adam's race, and we're all members of it. The race is just skin deep. We're all God's children. We all have equal rights. We're all created by him. Therefore, we do not have the right to violate the rights of another. And it's also important, kind of along those same lines, to include that pursuit of happiness was a revision. Originally, in Thomas's, Thomas Jefferson's draft, it said life, liberty, and property, because he was drawing that directly from the philosopher John Locke, who also derived his ideas directly from scripture. If you've ever read his book, he makes it very clear that he is deriving these sort of moral, uh, these moral ideas and these moral notions directly from the tradition of scripture. But without getting too far off into the weeds about that, a lot of people speculate, and I think that this is the most logical rationale, the reason that he did not include the word property specifically and instead included pursuit of happiness when it was revi revised by that committee of five, including him, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Roger Sherman, and I forget the fifth member. But anyway, um, when he was doing that revision, the reason that they changed it from property to pursuit of happiness was probably because they wanted to give, uh, they didn't want to give any leeway, didn't want to give any ammo to the argument that slavery was something that was espoused and was good. Because slavery would be a direct contradiction of everything they just said about us all being created equal, and they knew that. And so the reason that they did not include property and instead included pursuit of happiness is because it was a little more vague and they didn't want anybody getting the idea from reading this that, oh, I have a right to property, that includes people. Well, no, people are not property, but rather than going into a long philosophical discussion about why property would not be included, or sorry, property would not cover slavery, instead they decided to go with something just a little bit vaguer to save space, pursuit of happiness. But the point is it was probably included directly as a way to avoid giving the people that were proponents of slavery any breathing room or any ammo. And so that again plays to this idea that we are created equal and we are endowed by our creator with those inalienable rights. Let's look at the third reference here. And this is one you're probably a lot less familiar with. It's not one that gets talked about nearly as much as the first two that we've looked at. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the reditude of our intentions, do in the name and authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. Now look at that. Appealing to the supreme judge of the world. This is a very common concept in a couple of different books. Now, it's, it's talked about in lots of different books of the Bible, but there's two where it's super prominent. 
Acts and Psalms. Why Acts and Psalms? A couple of different reasons. First of all, when you're talking about Psalms, Psalms is a series of songs and prayers directed at the Father. And because of that, there are certain Psalms called Lament Psalms. And these Psalms directly make some kind of call to God to bring down judgment. Now, sometimes it's on the nation of Israel because they are behaving in a way that God would not accept. Sometimes it's to come down on Israel's enemies. But in all of these Psalms it, where it laments, th there might be a few that don't directly call for this, but the idea is God is the righteous judge of the world, and we want his judgment to come down to set things aright. And that's exactly what is being called for here in the Declaration. They are calling for the supreme judge of the world to come down and judge between us and between England who is right and who is wrong. And we now know, of course, history proved that that was the case, and it was the Americans that were right to do so. However, it's also mentioned in Acts. And now, why is Acts so important in this? Because the Christians often lamented and cried out for God's help in the book of Acts because they were being persecuted. In the book of Acts, there are multiple times where Paul, Peter, John are abused or attacked. Uh, it contains the story of the first martyr with Stephen, where he was actually stoned to death for speaking the truth to governing authorities. And so this is very Axian in that sense, that they're calling out to God for his judgment to come down upon the enemies of the United States because... They believe that they are acting in God's favor. England is acting against God's will. And because of that, they're saying, we invite God's judgment to come down upon us because we believe we are doing right by him. And when God comes down to judge us, he will find our case, the more compelling one. He will say that we are the ones that are indeed correct. And so that is exactly why they're calling down for the supreme judge of the world, obviously a reference to God to come down and judge between them and England. And furthermore, they were appealing to God in this sense, and that kind of strikes a pretty profound blow to the idea that these were a bunch of deists. Do you really think a group of mostly deists, mostly atheists, like let's say Richard Dawkins got together and there was a council of 56 atheists, do you think they would all sign a pledge saying, by the way, we would call for God to come down and judge between us and the Christians as to who was right. Well, that's just stupid because that, that would kind of be implying there that they believe in God just by saying that. But even in a deistic world, you would never call for God's providence, for God's judgment, if you were a deist because you would believe God doesn't do that. And so while there were two deists on this committee that we know of, the idea that this was the, the creation of a council of a bunch of deists is just stupid because it calls for God's providence to intervene right here. And furthermore, remember that God is an all-knowing judge. If God is an all-knowing judge and the founders are calling for God's judgment to fall upon them, and you'll notice if you look back at the text here, it actually says for the rectitude of our intentions. So they are specifically implying God knows our hearts. He knows what our intentions are. He knows what we want, and he knows what our hearts are, are saying. 
And because of that, we're saying that even an all-knowing judge that sees into our hearts will come here and find that we haven't done anything wrong and that it is England that has to answer to him and answer to his judgment. That's how confident the founders were that what they were doing was indeed the right thing. They're saying, we invite an all-knowing, all-seeing God to come down and judge between us, and then that's how sure we are that we are going to be vindicated by God's judgment. That's bold right there. But they were confident in this. It's the same way that if you were completely innocent, you know that there was no evidence standing against you when you were accused of a crime, you'd say, oh yeah, I welcome the court. Come on, let's, let's go into the courtroom and sort this thing out, because I know that once we do this, it's going to show that I'm innocent. That's how confident the founders were that their case was strong and that their case was indeed the correct one. And let's look at the final reference here. And this is probably my favorite one out of all of them. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. See this reference with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence? Again, I won't make this point again because we already made it ad nauseum, but deists wouldn't do that. They don't believe in providence. But on the actual point itself, they are saying we specifically are able to do this because of our faith in God. That because we have this assurance of divine providence to protect us, and because we are so confident, like we saw in the last reference, that God will judge us rightly, that we are able to make this declaration and put literally everything that is important to us on the line. Our lives, our fortunes, everything. Our honor, how the history books will remember us, the welfare of our families, the welfare of our communities. We are willing to stake literally everything that is important to us in this life on this assertion that we are right, that human beings are created equal in the image of God, that they are judges individuals, and that they ought to be free, and mankind has these rights, and England is violating them and acting in defiance of God's will. And because of that, because we are so 100% sure about this, because we have such absolute faith in this cause, we are willing to risk it all on this one shot. And here's the thing, they knew what that meant. If you look at the 56 signers, you will know that the vast majority of them lost their fortunes. Several of them lost their lives. Not that many of them survived after the war. If they did, they were destitute when they did. These were primarily large plantation owners, wealthy businessmen from New England. There was an assortment there, but just about all of them were very prosperous men. And just about all of them were left completely destitute afterward. Many of them lost family members. Some lost their spouses. Some lost their sons to war. But ultimately, they felt that the cause of freedom was worth that. They felt that divine providence was going to protect them and see them through that, even despite the hardship that they knew was coming because of signing this bill, or because of signing this declaration. They understood the risk. They understood what signing this document meant, and they knew that if England won the war, they would all be hung for treason. And yet they were so confident in God's protection through his divine providence 
that they were saying, because of that, we were able to sign this and put everything on the line for this cause that mankind is created equal, that he only needs to justify himself to himself, his family, and his God, and that everything else is immaterial. That is how confident they were in this, that mankind is supposed to have these rights and that God gives them to us at birth and that he is going to protect us and government should not trample upon them. And what that says to me is that this was not a faith of convenience. This is not something that they just believe. This was not the Joel Osteen gospel. This is something they were absolutely firmly rooted in. They knew the sacrifices and they said, we will do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. I mean, that's a living faith, the kind of faith that James talks about in James chapter 2. This was not a faith of convenience. This was a faith that was backed up by their actions. And I, I want to ask you this, and I know that I've already thoroughly debunked this, but if anybody else ever tries to bring up this idea that the founders or the signers of the Declaration were just a bunch of deists or atheists, I want you to ask them this. Would you believe that a person that were making a political declaration to another nation, if they didn't include any reference to God, would you consider that person not a good Christian? I wouldn't. I wouldn't look at something that was penned for political purposes, a letter that was given to a, another government to try to sort out a political dispute. If it contained no references to God, I wouldn't just assume that the people weren't Christians. I wouldn't assume that those people weren't good Christians. Despite this, these people were including four different references in a very short document. And so I say all of that to say that these people weren't just Christians. These were profound Christians that deeply believed in this because they had the option of leaving all four of these references out. And nobody would have faulted them. Nobody would have thought that they weren't really good Christians. They weren't real followers of Christ because they, were, they didn't include him in a declaration, a, a political notice, basically, that they are no longer a part of the British Empire. I wouldn't have looked at that and said, oh, they, they must not really believe in God. They went so far above and beyond that to say that God is the reason, he is the rationale, he is the thing that enables us to do that, that I don't think that any logical thinking person can look at this and say, no, no, the people that signed that document, they aren't, they're, they're not really Christians, they weren't really all that religious. I'm sorry, but that argument merely does not hold water. I, I would say that there is no merit to it whatsoever. Because... What this essentially was, this was Moses standing before Pharaoh saying, let my people go. Now, I know the founders didn't get a direct revelation from God at a burning bush. I'm not suggesting it's exactly the same in that sense. I'm not even suggesting it's exactly the same in significance because as important as the Declaration of Independence is, it is not the same thing as the start of God's nation. It's not that important. I mean, it's really important. I, I think I've made it pretty clear that I believe that, but it's not as important as that. I'm not making an argument of degrees here. What I am saying is it was similar in the sense that these men who had nothing but their own pluck, their own faith in divine providence to back them up, was saying to the most powerful empire in human history, which at the time they were writing this, that's what England was. At the time Moses said this to Pharaoh, that's what Egypt was. 
in the same sense, they were able to walk up to the biggest tyrant in the world that had everything going for them and they had nothing to back up their claims except for God being on their side. That's it. Moses did not have an army. He did not have a, a fighting force of any kind. He didn't have anything to threaten Pharaoh with other than the fact that God's on my side and he is not on your side. And that's exactly what the founders had. And this declaration proves that that's exactly how they thought of it too. They said, look, these truths that we hold to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they were able to say that because we've got the supreme judge of the world on our side. He is going to prove when he judges between us and between you who is right, and it's going to be us. You don't do that unless you have a strong faith. You don't do that unless you're convinced that you're on the right side of God's favor. And so because of that, I'm just trying to emphasize not only did the founders themselves, not only were they influenced by the teachings of scriptures, but they were influenced by its narrative. They were influenced by the way that people that had faith in God conducted themselves because they lived it out in their actions. It wasn't just that the ideas in the Declaration are uniquely Christian, Judeo-Christian principle ideas, but more importantly, that the action of declaring themselves independent in the first place was something they were only able to do because of their faith. Because you don't challenge the empire unless you've got something up your sleeve, and in their case, it was God, and that was all they needed. Which is good, because they didn't have any other advantage. The British Empire would have crushed them several times over had it not been for God intervening directly. And the same thing is true for, for the children of Israel. There was no way the children of Israel were going to overtake Egypt. That's just not a thing. Without God, they would have had zero chance of escaping on their own. And that was the point. It is a display of God's power, his mercy, and the, as long as you are espousing the principles and living the way that God tells you to live, that you're going to be vindicated and rewarded by God for that. That's what our founders believe, and that is the influence that God had over our Declaration of Independence. So we've got that interview coming up with Dr. Mark Hall in just a second, talking about our Christian founding, and then we've got the top 20 most American modern songs. So that is all coming up in just a second. We'll be right back on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Hey, where you going? Champ? Slugger? Hey, cowboy? Where you going? Where you going? I'm going out! Hey everybody, it's Caleb here, and I'm coming to you heading south on I-65. I was thinking about the recent expansion of Amtrak, which of course is federal government subsidized public transportation in the form of trains. And being on the road, I just kind of contrasted that to driving your own personal vehicle. I thought about the reason that people on the left tend to favor public transportation. And the reason that people on the right tend to favor private transportation, like owning your own vehicle. Pickup trucks, jeeps, motorcycles, whatever you may want to drive. 
And I thought about how this really illustrates the difference in those two philosophies in a lot of ways. For one, it really boils down to individualism. I mean, in a way, your vehicle is an expression of who you are. Some of you may have a pickup truck because it helps you with work. Some of you may have a delivery van because you're in some kind of occupation where you deliver things. Some of you may have any number of different cars and have them customized with certain paint jobs or certain decals because ultimately it's an expression of who you are. That doesn't happen with public transportation. Everybody's on the same cart that looks exactly the same as every other cart. And when it comes to Amtrak, besides them just hemorrhaging money and, and besides it being a favorite transportation of people in urban areas, ultimately I think the reason that people on the left just sort of fundamentally favor public transportation a lot more is because it doesn't treat people like individuals. Is there any greater expression of freedom than owning your own vehicle, learning how to drive, getting your license at 16, and basically having the world as your oyster? I mean, you can jump out anytime you want to. If you want to wake up at 2 a.m. and jump on your motorcycle and just take off into the blue, or I guess at that time of day into the black, that's your business. It's up to you. You do it when you want to. It works around your schedule. That doesn't happen with public transportation. With public transportation, you have to show up when they tell you to show up, get on the train when they tell you to get on the train. It goes at a set miles per hour. It, it plans out the trip exactly, and it can't go anywhere else other than where it was already designated because it's on tracks. It literally can't go anywhere other than staying on the line that government set out for it at its onset. And I think that that's kind of the way that people on the left view people too. They want government to lay out a track for you and you get on when they tell you to get on, you get off when they tell you to get off, and basically everything is planned ahead of time. It's not like having your own vehicle where if you are in an off-road vehicle like a, a Jeep, you jump in your Jeep and you don't even have to stay on the road if you want to. You can just drive out into the middle of nowhere. Uh, if you're in a pickup truck, you can just drive out in the middle of a pasture. If you are on a dirt bike, then you can do that. I mean, there's no greater symbol of freedom than being on the open road. And that's why I think people on the right tend to favor it more. In a lot of ways, it is one of the most American signs of liberty that we have in our culture. And ultimately, the left just doesn't like individualism or liberty. And that's why they'd rather have your government-issued standard public transportation that requires you to stay in the lines and work off their schedule and do things according to their plan. The right just wants you to be able to essentially do what you want. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for joining us on the program. As always, we appreciate any time you're able to give us. But if you do like the program, be sure to like and subscribe. That helps us fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. And if you want to get me in an Independence Day present, that would be the best one that you could do. And speaking of our Independence Day theme, since that is, of course, coming up this weekend, we have a very special guest that is here who is an expert on the founding 
his name is Dr. Mark Call. He is with George Fox University, a professor of political science there, and has written the book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? He's actually been on the program once before, so let's welcome him back now. Dr. Hall, how are you? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excellent. And always a pleasure to be able to, to have you on the program. Uh, we, we've only had you on once before, but I think this is the first time you've Zoomed in, so it's good to actually be able to, to see your face. Um, one thing that I did want to ask you, too, uh, about did America have a Christian founding, since you're the guy that literally wrote the book on this, one of the things that we've been focusing on in this particular Independence Day is always try to do something different for each Independence Day, even though it's along the same kind of theme. Uh, we've been really looking into and diving into the Christian heritage of our founders today and how their Christian beliefs, even though they were varied and they belonged to different denominations, there was a, a common running theme there going back to their belief in God and their belief that he would set things right is actually what allowed the founding to take place. So if you could offer a little commentary on that for us. Sure. Well, let's begin with the 40,000 foot view. So virtually every American of European descent was a Christian. About 98% were Protestants, 2% uh, were Roman Catholic. There may be 2,000 Jews in four or five cities. So everyone would have identified as a Protestant. Mm -hmm. As you said, there was there, there were different denominations, but overwhelmingly Reformed or Calvinist. About 75% were Congregationalists and Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists about 15% Anglicans or so. And as Protestants, they took the Bible seriously. They were people of the book. They routinely quoted the Bible, oftentimes without citation. They made biblical arguments. And they certainly were thinking in biblical terms when they um, decided to, many of them decided to resist Great Britain's, what they considered to be tyrannical acts. Yeah, and one thing that you mentioned there that I think is is always used as a point against the idea that we had a Christian founding, but I think is actually a point in its, its favor, is that it was very often that the founders would quote the Bible without citing it. And so these are often dismissed as, well, those aren't really, cite like if they really wanted to quote the Bible or invoke some kind of religious uh, theme in whatever it was they were addressing there, they would have given you book, chapter, and verse, or they would have directly said, you know, from the book of, but here's the thing. I think we do that a lot now in our present society because the level of biblical literacy is very low. Back then, as you pointed out, in the United States, it would have been very, very high. And so it would be kind of like quoting Avengers Endgame. Like, it's something that almost everybody knows. There's really no need to cite it. If you're doing something that's a direct quote, people will automatically recognize it without you having to cite it. And I actually think that that, if anything, strengthens the case that not just the founders, but the people they were conversing with were extremely biblically literate. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. There was simply no need to include citations. And so some modern scholars get misled by this. So a very prominent um, student of the American founding basically said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, there is no evidence that George Washington ever read the Bible or quoted it. And yet he quoted Micah 4.4 more than 40 times. The problem is, as you suggested, he um, simply paraphrased it without having the citation. And so this very prominent student at the American founding who is biblically illiterate simply missed out on it. Ben Franklin had a great letter to um, someone in England. He was republishing his work in, in, in 
in England. And he basically said, in America, we don't need to include the biblical citations because everyone knows the Bible. However, in England, not so much biblically literate. And so therefore, I'm going to include the biblical citations in um, the, the English version of this text. Right. And I, I think that that does show uh, not only their desire to know it, but also their reverence for the Word of God. Mm -hmm. So let's get a little bit more specific since we are here on the 245th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now, this is a very short document, and yet it has four direct mentions to God. But some people will write that off because they'll, they'll say it doesn't, you know, other than the reference to nature's God, it just kind of indirectly addresses it. But I think that even in the parts of it that don't directly mention God as it were, it's kind of like the book of Esther, which never actually mentions God at all, but very strongly implies his providence is in play. And so could you talk to us a little bit about the influence of the, the Christianity of the founders on the Declaration of Independence? Sure. And I think sometimes people get a little misled here because everyone knows that Thomas Jefferson drafted the Declaration of Independence. And Thomas Jefferson is that rare American founder who is not an Orthodox Christian. We know from his private correspondence that he believed in God, but that he rejected miracles, the atonement, the virgin birth, and this sort of thing. And yet this fundamentally misunderstands the nature of a document like the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson did write the first draft, but there was a committee of five that revised this draft, including Roger Sherman, the old Puritan from Connecticut. Mm -hmm. This document then went to the full Congress that revised it again and added to it, including some of these references to God. And so ultimately, when we're interpreting a document like this, I think we have to view it as a product of a community, not something that jumped out of um, Thomas Jefferson's head. So when we read a sentence like, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a profoundly theological proposition, and it really grounds the theoretical argument of the whole document. And so when we think about a claim like that, we have to interpret it in light of the 55 so or so men in the Continental Congress at the time. And to these men, almost to a person, this is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God that absolutely intervenes in human affairs. This isn't some sort of deistic God that Jefferson may have embraced. It was a God of, of, again, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God that absolutely is involved in human affairs. Well, and that's the thing, too. You don't write the line with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence if you believe that God doesn't do providence if he's not involved in humans' lives, which is the, the claim of people that, that say that most of the founders were deists. And, and by the way, um, just wanted to, to grant a little nuance to one of the things that you were talking about. Uh, it is true that Jefferson had some questions about the miraculous, but he also asserts the miraculous in some of his other writings. And so uh, one thing that I think a lot of people make a mistake on is when they quote one of the Jefferson Bibles, a lot of people don't realize there's two of them. Uh, mm -hmm. When they quote one of the Jefferson Bibles, they say, well, that Bible excluded all the miracles. Well, it also excluded all of the narratives in general because it was specifically a commentary on Christ's teachings. And so um, it's true that Jefferson is one of the least Christian founders, and he was not somebody that was as orthodox as, as maybe the rest of the founders. But to assert that he was some kind of, of deist that only just kind of believed in God or didn't believe in his providence or didn't believe in his direct intervention in the affairs of men, I think is an incorrect characterization that a lot of people fall into. 
You know, I think that's an excellent point. So just for your listeners, deism often is defined as a, um, a, as a, as a belief system that allows the existence of God. Mm-hmm. God creates a world and then re- removes himself from it, doesn't intervene in human affairs, doesn't do miracles. If that's in fact what we mean by deism, it's maybe only the case that maybe Ethan Allen is a deist and right. Thomas Paine, although he's English, because you have people like Jefferson routinely invoking God's providence. Now, in a few of these instances, one might say, well, perhaps he did it merely as political rhetoric. But again, it's one needs to make that argument. And oftentimes, people who claim that most of America's founders are deists don't bother to make that argument. You turn to someone like George Washington, who is always included in this list of deists. Mm-hmm. He refers to providence like more than 500 times. And he's very specific. God protected me from this evil. God gave us victory in this battle. Well, now, if um, you're Washington, you, know, you had good reason to believe that, considering there was one battle where he had, what, seven bullet holes in his coat, two hats shot off of him, and two horses shot out from under him. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think that made Washington a believer, if anything else. Absolutely. But one point that you were making there that, that I think is uh, really crucial to understand about the American founding to, to really get a grasp on it is the influences of these guys were strongly biblical and also strongly Lockean. I mean, there was a, a very strong influence there from the Enlightenment period. But even that is derivative because Locke is deriving a lot of his political philosophy. If you've read uh, uh, Second Treaties of Government, he's deriving a lot of that from biblical morality. And so uh, regardless of the source material that they were using to sort of develop their ideas. And that's not to say they didn't have original ideas of their own as well, but ultimately uh, they were sort of baptized and bathed in these ideas that have their roots in Judeo-Christian principles. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. So in the Reformed or the Calvinist tradition, almost every idea we associate with John Locke, the right to resist tyrannical authority, the idea that individuals have rights, the idea that government is based on the consent of the governed, that was all there. It was there 100 years before Locke wrote the Second Treatise. And so he's best understood as writing in this tradition. And in his heart of hearts, he was probably something like a Unitarian, uh, but his political teachings are, are, are Christian political teachings, Protestant political teachings. Um, the Roman Catholics weren't quite there yet, but they would eventually catch up with the Protestants in the 20th century and embrace these political ideas. Well, and I think that that's an important way to, to couch sort of what we're talking about is there was some debate as to whether it was, you know, Calvinist or Reformed, but there was no question of, okay, is atheism involved in there? Because there's really not any evidence of that. Uh, The idea that there's something deeply secular or sort of this anti-religious sentiment that is undergirding the the revolution is is just simply not there. Uh, But with that in mind, and, and this is something that you and I were actually talking about a little bit off air before we Uh, got onto the interview, Uh, one thing that a lot of Christians seem to disagree on, and there's a a lot of, you know, very respectable Christian scholars that I think are uh, right-hearted, but but come to the incorrect conclusion, and uh, I wanted to compare notes with you on this because you and I seem to be on the same page. I want to see if we got there through the same rationale. Uh, Was the revolution something that is biblical, where the, the founders, were they actually following scripture by engaging in the revolution and revolting against Britain, or were they committing a sin and it just happened to yield good results? 
No, it's, it's a great question. Many Christian scholars who've written on this question have claimed that the war for American independence was unbiblical and unjust. Let's address a biblical claim first. If you read Romans 13, 1 and 2, mm -hmm. it sure seems to say that all government is ordained by God and that Christians have an obligation to obey government. And the church for about 1,200 years pretty much accepted this to be the case. That is, um, you don't get to rebel against the government. If the government tells you to bow down and worship Baal, you refuse to do it, but then take the consequences like Daniel did, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right. did. However, the, there, there were some Catholic thinkers that were toying around with this doctrine of tyrannicide, that is, a just killing of a tyrant. But it's really the reformers, John Calvin and Pone and the author of Windicates Contros Tyrannos, who came up with this, uh, this interpretation in Romans 13, they kept reading. They got down to verses three and four, where it says governments reward those who do good and they punish those who do evil. And so it's sort of a, a natural question. What if you have a quote unquote government that is routinely punishing those who do good and rewarding those who do evil? We can think most obviously maybe of Hitler's Germany. That is not the sort of quote unquote government that Romans 13 is talking about. So therefore it's permissible for Christians to rise up and overthrow this government. The early reformers insisted that the inferior magistrate should be the ones who lead this battle. But even as John Calvin was writing his institutes where he talks about the inferior magistrates, you have John Knox up in Scotland saying, no, 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 the people themselves, if the inferior magistrates don't resist a tyrannical king, the people themselves may do so. And so this idea, it, it's just, it permeates America. Remember, America is 98% Protestant, about 75% Calvinist. This was in the air they breathed. There was just no question that if you have a government that is tyrannical, it may be resisted. And this is exactly what the American patriots did. Okay, now I'm going to play devil's advocate with you here because I agree, but I, I want to issue a counter argument to give you a chance to respond. Remember that at the time that Romans was written, it was written to the Roman church, which at the time was facing persecution directly from the Roman government. And it didn't happen at the point that Romans was written, but not long thereafter, you had Roman emperors that were celebrating with public orgies. Uh, while feeding Christians to lions. I mean, if that's not calling good evil and evil good. So why is it that the early Christians did not revolt against Rome at that point, if your analysis is correct? Yeah, this is a great question. This is where I think we have to resort to the, the Christian just war tradition. That is how Christians have historically thought about using force and even lethal force. Um, there's a variety of questions one might ask. One is, the most obvious is, is there a just cause? Is resisting a tyrant a just cause? Another question, though, is, is there a reasonable chance of success? So I think the early Christians, there was just no way they could overthrow the Roman Empire. And so therefore, one ought not to use force, one ought not to rebel in this sort of instance. Mm -hmm. In the case of the American colonies, though, I, I think almost by definition, QED, there was a reasonable chance of success because they succeeded, right? They fought the British Empire and, and they won. And so I think we always have to take that into account, right? So to apply it to a contemporary situation, um, one might say that the Chinese government today is treating its Christian and Islamic citizens unjustly. But would these citizens, if they bounded together, have a chance of overthrowing the government of China? Probably not. Therefore, they ought to just keep their heads down and they ought not to revolt against this tyrannical government today. 
Uh, that that's a very pragmatic and utilitarian answer. Um, I, I don't know that I I necessarily disagree with it, but I'm I'm just saying that like usually in the moral sense, you don't consider the practicality, um, at least in the form of whether or not it's good or evil. You do consider the practicality, of course, of, as to whether you can do it, which you just brought up. And I mean, I, I think that that's wise. God doesn't want us to be suicidal, but at the same time. Uh, I, I do think that whether or not something is a moral good or moral evil, practicality rarely, if ever, plays into that equation. Uh, my rationale for it is a little bit different than yours, and I just kind of want to bounce this off of you and see mm -hmm. what you think about it. Uh, my contention was, okay, we, we do have to submit to government authority. The question is, which one? Because one thing that the people forget about the founding is that there were multiple governments in play that you had the governments of the states who believed that they should be sovereign that voted in some cases to actually get away from England. And so this is something that was not devoid of government processes. And, and one of the reasons that I contend that the American revolution worked where so many others failed or fell apart shortly after they accomplished their revolution and overthrew their uh, oppressors in, in you know, Russia, France, whatever, the reason that America stuck and the others didn't is because we already had governing authorities in place, ready to take the reins the second that we were no longer a part of the British Empire. And so I think the fact that there was there were multiple concerns about that, and also the fact that the government itself, um, there was a second government that was saying, uh, no, we're going to not do this and we're going to break away from England. Then the founders have to make a choice of, okay, now we have to pick which governing authority the Bible commands us to be loyal to. Yeah, no, I think that's a very fair point. So, um, you know, the, the the Patriots viewed the British Empire as working like this. You have mm -hmm. England, you have Virginia, you have Massachusetts, you have South Carolina, and so forth. There's about 50 British colonies at the time. Each of these is self-governing. So if you're in Virginia, the House of Burgesses passes taxes, you pay your taxes to the government of Virginia, and the government of Virginia uses it for various purposes. All of these entities are held together by the king, right? By a loyalty to the king. The king provides protection in exchange for some sort of uh, obligation. The problem with the, um, really things started in 1765 when the English parliament decided to start taxing the American colonists. And the American mm -hmm. colonists said, no, you can't do this. This is beyond your authority. It would be similar to the, the government of parliament, uh, the, gov the parliament of Canada taxing American citizens today. It simply is not, is not permissible. I think one thing that's telling is Americans didn't just pick up rifles and start shooting right away in 1765, right? right? Yeah. There were boycotts, there were petitions, there were petitions to parliament, petitions to the king, petitions to the British people. And this went on for well over 10 years before eventually British started sending troops to America, seizing weapons, and Americans finally said, okay, this is enough. And they resisted by, by, by force. And you're exactly right. You have all these, I think Calvin would call them inferior magistrates, right? The government of Virginia, the government of Massachusetts. And then collectively, they came together in the Continental and Confederation Congress um, to act at a national level. Yeah, so absolutely, you have differing, different government authorities. And the American patriots were making, I think, very good arguments that what parliament is attempting to do is unjust. It's unconstitutional. The king, um, the, the Declaration of Independence, of course, doesn't mention parliament at all. It only mentions a king. And the problem there was the king had removed the colonists from his protection and was engaged in acts of violence against them. And the Declaration of Independence documents this. And I think 
shows, I think it proves definitively that there was just cause to resist these tyrannical acts. Well, and that's one thing that's interesting that you kind of hinted at it there, but I've always said about the Declaration, if you want to know the story of the Revolution and the build-up to it, all you have to do is read the Declaration, because it tells you right there uh, the things that you were talking about where they start engaging in acts of violence against them. That's mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, if you want to talk about the taxes that led up to it, that's mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. If you want to talk about the fact that they have over and over and over again tried to get the king's attention, told him what their problems were, and were met with scorn, that's also in the Declaration. And so all of these things are specifically laid out in the Declaration of Independence. And even though I think people generally, if they've, they've studied history even a little bit, they know like the, the first part and the last part. Um, and I think that that's good that they know at least that. But they kind of sometimes miss the fact that that middle section where it gets specific in some of the, the problems that they have, uh, first of all, it gives you insight into where their mind was and the rationale for breaking away. And second, and I think that this may be um, even more important, is that it gives you the basis of the Constitution. Like most of our constitutional amendments, you can find the rationale for why they exist in the Declaration. And so um, I think that when you look into that document, they were emphatic about it. They weren't hiding the ball. They weren't just a, a bunch of angry rabble rousers that wanted to, to do what they, you know, whatever they wanted. They they came to this conclusion through a long methodical process. And I think that their faith played a very instrumental role in that. And you can see that as evidenced by the fact that they mentioned God several times in the declaration itself. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree at all. I think that's absolutely right. Um, once about 15 years ago, I actually read through every Supreme Court decision that mentioned the Declaration of Independence. And it is remarkable how often the U.S. Supreme Court will reach back to the Declaration to help explain what is meant by various rights in the Bill of Rights and, and this sort of thing. So yeah, the Declaration of Independence, one of the four organic laws of the United States. Um, I, I, I'm, the romantic side of me tends to think of it as a mission statement, right? The Constitution is kind of bland compared to the majestic lines in the in the Declaration, especially the first and second paragraphs. Yeah, so that brings me to uh, another thing that I'm interested in that I think you might have some valuable insight on. Um, when the founders said that they had a, a firm reliance on the protection of divine, divine providence, um, what exactly did that look like for them? What were they counting on when it comes to protecting them because our, our ideas of divine providence today especially in the minds of most modern protestants i think is is a little bit different than theirs and so if you could speak to that just for a second sure well i, I think almost to a person again an exception of maybe an ethan allen a thomas young you can point to one or two um probably atheists certainly deists um, they believed that God intervened in human affairs. God was in charge. God brought about his will in this country, in, in, in the world, really, and in this country specifically. And so, yeah, when they picked up arms against Great Britain, they thought that God was, in fact, on their side and that he would bring about victory. Now, of course, as you know, that it, it wasn't just simply a story of victories. The patriots lost some battles and this sort of thing. But ultimately, they were convinced that God would bring about justice. And I think they were right. Well, and as I'm sure that you know, 56 of the men that, that signed the Declaration, there was a very large percentage of those guys that didn't see the end of the war. Or if they did, that they were they went from being very wealthy men to being beggars. And so uh, there was quite a bit of personal sacrifice involved in the people that decided to sign this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I guess maybe the thing that I kind of want to leave the audience with, so this will be my my last question to you. Um, when it comes to the basic ideals of life, liberty, and property, if you're looking at Thomas Jefferson's original draft, Pursuit of Happiness, if you're looking at the revised one by Adams and, and Benjamin Franklin, you know, uh, when you're looking at that, those primordial rights that are mentioned there seem to be the primary driving force behind their decision that the government is violating these, therefore it is right for us to break away from them. Uh, what do you think is the, uh, you know, the, I guess the scriptural bedrock for that? What, what scriptures had the most influence on them and drove them to believe that these are the rights that are most important that are being, uh, you know, set upon by the, the British crown? And because of that, we must break away from them. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I like that a lot. So um, the, the founders explicitly argue that humans are created in the Mago Dei, the image of God, and therefore should be treated with dignity and respect, and therefore life should be protected, right? James Wilson, the early Supreme Court Justice, is crystal clear that from its conception until the natural end, life must be respected. And so when you have a government that is threatening innocent human life, this is a very serious problem. As well, liberty, the uh, idea that individuals must be free to worship God according to the dictates of conscience and act upon their religious convictions. Um, when the British government was threatening to send a, a bishop to British North America, presumably to crack down upon all these dissenting Protestants, these non-Anglicans, they saw a real existential threat to liberty, a, a proper God-given understanding of liberty. And the founders, incidentally, understood that there's a difference between liberty and licentiousness. This is a, a difference that is lost in us today, right? So the U.S. Supreme Court says, for instance, that we have a right to curse in public. We have a right to burn the American flag as a form of political protest. Uh, the American founders would have had no idea about this. They would say, no, that's licentiousness. You don't have a right to do that sort of thing. We have a, a freedom and ability to do what is right. Yeah, so they grounded these rights absolutely on the word of God uh, in a Christian theology. Um, that, and that's just life for liberty. We could keep going if you wanted, but those are right. probably two of the most important and essential rights. Yeah, just a, a quick little note on that, because I, I agree with you, because just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that you ought to do it. And, and it also, liberty, in the, in the scriptural sense, always comes coupled with responsibility. There is no exception mm -hmm. that I'm aware of where liberty and responsibility don't come hand in hand when they're granted in the scripture. Uh, but a great example of that is George Washington did not allow his soldiers to drink or cuss in the army. Now think about that. <laughs> Uh, compared to, and, and I love our servicemen today, but they're kind of known for drinking and cussing, and that's not a thing that would have been allowed in George Washington's army. Um, but yeah, so what you're talking about there, and I, I know that I said that that was going to be my last question, but I think I have to ask one more just because it, it made me think of something else. Um, there is so much, and I hate that I even have to address this, but it is the elephant in the room here. Um, there's been so much said, especially recently, about the founders when it came to race relations and how they didn't really mean what they said when they were saying all men are created equal in the Declaration, and that was uh, just flowery language, which uh, I would offer the counter-argument of, well, if uh, slavery was popular in the day as you claim it is, then why would that have been something that it would have been for political expedience if people don't like it? But anyway, uh, getting off that point. Uh, 
Do you think that Jefferson and the Committee of Five and then eventually the 56 signers genuinely believed this idea that you're talking about of man being created in, in God's image and that extended to all men? I think they absolutely did. And they were reasoning to the proper conclusion that therefore slavery is unacceptable. Slavery must be ended. And they took a number of steps to end it, right? So eight states voluntarily ended slavery or put slavery in the road to extinction between 1776 and 1804. We forget about this. Nobody knows this, right? Including, um, you mentioned the Committee of Five, Roger Sherman from Connecticut, never owned a slave. In 1783, he penned the statute in Connecticut that put slavery on the road to extinction. He understood that slavery was an unacceptable practice. The Northwest Ordinance passed by the Confederation Congress banned the, the expansion of slavery into the Northwest Territory. Those territories that became the states of Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin, Minnesota and that sort of thing, Illinois, Indiana. Um, they understood slavery was an evil and it had to be ended. Very unfortunately, in the 1790s, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, which made cotton production far more profitable in the American South. And so slavery sort of got a new lease on life in the American South. And eventually, um, Southerners started defending slavery as a positive good. But nobody, literally no one in the American founding defended slavery as a positive good. I think everyone recognized it was an evil that needed to be ended. They were optimistic that it would be ended. And um, in, in, many, in many states, very specific concrete steps were taken to end it. Well, and what you mentioned in the Committee of Five that, are, that drafted the declaration and, and revised Thomas Jefferson's original draft, you also have Ben Franklin, who founded the first abolitionist organization in America. You also have John Adams, who argued vehemently against slavery his entire life. And you have Thomas Jefferson, who people say, well, he's a slave owner. Well, yes, he is. But he tried to abolish slavery three different times, once in Virginia, once nationally, and once in France. And so you're right that even the people that actually owned slaves and were a part of the system, and in some cases profited from the system, were against it. At the time of the Constitution, when that was put together in 1789, there were only two states that were actually still in favor of slavery, South Carolina and Georgia, and neither one of them defended it as a good. They said, we should get rid of it gradually versus all at once. That was their argument. And so mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely correct in, in pointing some of that out, that the overwhelming evidence is, uh, you know, we, we can say some, some very different things about what happened after the 1790s, but at the time of 1776 on July 4th, when they signed this document, they absolutely meant it. And in the original Thomas Jefferson draft, it actually specifically called for an end to slavery as a reason for separating from the British crown. So uh, Dr. Hall, it's been absolutely great to have you as it always is. I, I love your insight. Uh, if somebody's heard what you've said and they, they like what you've said and they want to learn more, uh, I know that they can buy your book. How would they go about doing that? You know, probably Amazon's the best place to get it. Um, did America have a Christian founding? I address a number of these questions. I have a book that will come out probably in a year, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, where slavery and then the abolitionist movement, which we didn't even touch on, right? The abolitionist movement of the 19th century, fundamentally driven by Christians, motivated by their faith to end the evil uh, horror of slavery. Yeah, so we, 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 we neglect these sorts of things at our peril. It seems to me, and I know you agree. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Hall. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Caleb. Take care. Appreciate it. That is Dr. Mark Hall. He's a professor at George Fox University, a professor of political science. We always appreciate you him being generous with his time 
with us. We're going to be back after just this short break on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Welcome back into the program, everybody, and happy Independence Day. We are certainly glad that you decided to make us a part of your 4th of July festivities, so we are glad to have you on the program where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Or maybe you're watching us after Independence Day. Hey, that's cool, too. We don't really care when you're watching. Maybe you just are very patriotic, and that's absolutely fine with us. We like that here, so be sure to hit the like button and subscribe to this channel, or you know, hit the rumble button. However you're watching us, we certainly appreciate it. And you doing stuff like that helps us fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. So we appreciate any help you can give us there. What we are going to do next is the top 10 most American modern songs. So they are going to be songs that are the most American, but they're the ones that were made in the modern era. So without further ado, let's go ahead and go to the top 10. The Tactics Top 10. All right, so for this top 10 of the top 10 most American songs, there are a couple of rules. Since this is the modern songs, it has to be written less than 50 years ago. So for us, that would mean the cutoff point would be 1961. So the reason that I did that is we could have done just a regular all-time kind of thing. But then, you know, you'll have like Battle Home of the Republic and Star Spangled Banner. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that list is predictable. And so I figured for entertainment purposes, primarily, I was going to go ahead and put together a list of modern American songs that have been done. And so for that, 50 years is the cutoff. It has to have been done at least in the past 50 years. Also, another rule, only one song per artist. Because there are several artists that do a lot of patriotic stuff, Big and Rich, Toby Keith, Lee Greenwood. These artists all could have had multiple songs on the list, but the thing is we limited it to specifically one song per artist. And then finally, it is the most American, not the most patriotic. Now, this isn't really a rule, just a distinction I wanted to give you before we start. That these are not necessarily the songs that are the most patriotic, even though there's going to be several very patriotic songs on here. They're the ones that are most American, that describe what it is to be American, what it's like to be a part of this country, kind of along those lines. So not necessarily the most patriotic, the most American songs in modern history. So let's go ahead and get started with our honorable mentions. Honorable mention. So I'm going to do the honorable mentions a little bit different. Normally when I do honorable mentions, I just spit them out there, but there were so many great songs. I decided to actually rank them this time. And so we're actually going to be doing 20. So bonus content. Yay. We're actually giving you 10 very patriotic songs and we are doing them in order. So I'm going to do these very quickly since they're uh, honorable mentions. Number 20, American Made by the Oak Ridge Boys. Look, this is a perfect song that epitomizes the idea of the American melting pot. That He gets his video games from overseas, and yeah, his girlfriend wears tight jeans that she got in Mexico and wears French perfume. But at the end of the day, that all comes together to create the American experience. And the fact that we invite other cultures to be a part of our culture is part of what makes America great. Number 19, 
God bless the USA, Lee Greenwood. Look, there's the reason it's the standard. It's one of the most patriotic songs of all time. There's a reason you hear it at every 4th of July barbecue. That alone makes it worthy of an honorable mention. Number 18, Two Soldiers Coming Home by Lori McKenna. I'm not going to give away any spoilers because this is one you probably haven't heard. It's from the movie Act of Valor. Fantastic song. Absolutely love it. And I'm not going to give away too much because it's kind of a story song and there's a little bit of a twist ending. But it really does show just how Americans absolutely love our troops. We love our service members. And this song is really a testament to that. Number 17, Ragged Old Flag by Johnny Cash, which is weird because it's not really a song in the traditional sense. It's more just Johnny Cash talking set to music, which I guess is a lot of Johnny Cash's songs, actually. Uh, but the flag's kind of a symbol for America as a whole. And the story of that song, I guess, is that we've just been through a lot and we've been able to endure it kind of like the flag is. And so the flag is representative of America as a whole, that we've been through an awful lot. But guys, we have made it. Number 16, Living in America by James Brown. This one's just an outpouring of, man, life in America is pretty darn good. And the fact that it's in a Rocky movie certainly doesn't help. It's America street cred, as it were. Fantastic song, fun to listen to. James Brown is one of the great American singers, and, and he talks about life being pretty good here, and I happen to agree with him. Number 15, Fortunate Son by Credence Clearwater Revival. Now, a lot of people will say that this is an anti-American song. No, it's not. The government is not America. And that's one thing that I have to get across to people over and over again, on the right and the left. They are critical of the government. They are critical of elites. They're critical of hypocrites that are saying, oh, well, you know, you need to give more. You need to, to give your life. You need to give more taxes, so on and so forth. But then when it comes to them, oh, no, no, I don't, I've, I've given enough. I really have. <laughs> and so uh, really the message of this song is elites suck. And that is a song that is, that is a theme that is very, very American. And so that definitely deserves an honorable mention. American Soul by Aaron Watson. This is another obscure one. You might not know it, might not be as familiar with this one. But if you ask me, the premise of this song is there is hope for the future because it starts out talking about a, a bunch of older men, which sometimes for good reason. But the, the story kind of goes that they're talking about how everything in America sucks now and it's not as good as it used to be. But this song, it pays homage to the past generation, but it also talks about, guys, there's reasons to be hopeful for future generations as well. And I think that that is true. I love this song. If you haven't heard Aaron Watson before, that whole album is good, but especially listen to the song American Soul. It's the, the album is actually named after that song. So American Soul by Aaron Watson. Number 13, Oki from Muskogee by Merle Haggard. Look, it's just about his hometown. It's where he's from. He's like, this is the way we do things. We like it. If you don't like it, move somewhere else. And that's a very American sentiment, which I really love. It even kind of takes a swing at San Francisco that they don't let their hair grow long and shaggy like the hippies in San Francisco do. I think that that's American too. The fact there's a little bit of rivalry between different cities and different places or different states. In America, that's something that has always been true of America ever since the very inception and actually before it. We, we barely came together as a country because there was so much rivalry between the individual colonies. And so that's something that is very American. Number 12, Letters from Home by John Michael Montgomery. That's a great song. It's a tearjerker. It's hard to get through this one without getting a bad case of the feels. And I say this is someone that is not very emotional. But man, listening to this song... It just gives you a little bit of insight 
into some of the really difficult situations that military families have to go through with having their loved ones so far away and having to worry about whether or not they're all right. And it just gives some insight in that, especially the line where the, the mom is up late and can't sleep because she saw something on the news and thinks about, you know, what if my son's caught up in that battle, that kind of thing. And so it, it really just does give an insight into the amazing sacrifices that it, not just our service members, but also the families of our service members go through. And so because of that very American song, number 11, Fly Over States by Jason Aldean. America is the heartland. That's what this song is saying. It's, it's not trying to cast shade on people from the cities or whatever, but that's something that is very American. When you think of France, you think of Paris. When you think of Britain, you think of London. When you think of America, yeah, some people think New York City. Some people think LA. But you know what most people think of when they think of America? They think of small town America. That's something that's very unique to us as a country. You know, they think about the heartland, or as Jason Aldean says in this song, uh, Harvest Moon in Kansas, or, or going through Oklahoma. Like, uh, the fact that small towns are what people think of when they think of our country is something that is very American. So that's all of our honorable mentions. Let's jump into the top 10. Number 10. Number 10 on this list, Pink Houses by John Cougar Mellencamp, or John Mellencamp, I guess now, since he doesn't like me using his middle name. John Mellencamp's Pink Houses, there's nothing more American than wanting to own your own home. And that's kind of what this is describing, the different events, the day-to-day -day things that are going on in the houses. And by the way, it doesn't paint it as always being perfect or pretty. Guys, that's America. America ain't perfect. There's problems here. And we understand that, but we work through them. And even though we have the problems and we acknowledge that there's issues there, we also acknowledge that what we have is pretty good. And that's kind of what Pink Houses is talking about. It's not always perfect. It doesn't try to paint it with rose-colored glasses, but there's people here that are very grateful for the lifestyle that they have, and that's kind of what this song speaks to. Number nine. Number nine, Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue by Toby Keith. This one just had to make the list, and the reason is because it's such a song that says, screw you to anybody that doesn't like it. <laughs> and the message here is American. It's like, look, as long as you don't mess with us, we won't mess with you. You start messing with us, we're going to kick your butt. Anything that you do to us, we're going to do to you 10 times over and we'll laugh about it the entire time. <laughs> and that's really what this song is about. It's, it's sort of capturing that American idea of leave us alone and we leave you alone. You mess with us, you're going to be sorry for it. Number eight. Number eight, We Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. And this is one I think a lot of people mistakenly think is actually anti-American. It's not anti-American. It's anti-government. And this one, even more so than the last one we looked at that was anti-government, this one's anti-politician, which, if you ask me, makes it even more an American song. The idea that, oh, we just vote for these people and we vote for somebody else next time and they promise all these things and they don't do any of it. They don't keep their word. And, well, we won't get fooled again next time. I mean, that's exactly the kind of situation this song is speaking to. It's saying, if you want things to change, if you want something to actually uh, get done in your community, you don't wait for the politicians to do it. You get out there, you do it yourself. That is something that is uniquely American. Number seven. 
Number seven, My Town by Montgomery Gentry. This is a fantastic, fantastic song. And it, it gives such a great illustration and it, it paints like such a word picture of what American life is like in these little towns all across our country. There's this sense of community there that is really, really important to this song. It's talking about, oh, the thing that we all know about, I Love Jenny is, is painted on the water tower out there and the changes this community goes over. And then at the end of the song, it also extends what I think is the ultimate message of the song, which is, yeah, this is our community. We own it. We like it here. But you know what else? We open up our arms and say, this is our town. And it hits on so many different parts of American life. It hits on the community aspect. It hits on, uh, you know, the, the school and the family kind of aspect. And then it hits on religion. You know, that, that's the way that the, the church is over there. Everything's closed down on Sunday. It's kind of this glorification of small town America. And because of that, and I guess maybe because I'm a small town boy myself, I absolutely love it. It really does give an insight into what small town America is like. Number six. Number six on this list is David Ball writing with Private Malone. Now, we talked about letters from home earlier, but man, this one is a tearjerker. It is hard to listen to this song. And again, I say this is somebody that is not really prone to emotion, but I think the best thing I could say about this song is that the car in the song is symbolic of the American dream. And sometimes that looks very different for different people because that car was a dream of the soldiers, but he never really got to live it out because he gave his life for his country, which is a very American theme in and of itself. But then that dream extends to the future generation. And so these two people, these two Americans who have never met each other, they didn't even live, they were not alive at the same time, they are connected by this thing, a car, which I mean, if you're going to do something to symbolize America, a car is a fantastic one. You know, you think about road trips, that's something that is American as well. The open road is sort of symbolic of freedom, that kind of thing. And so the fact that this thing binds them together is kind of like how America across generations, across spectrums or, or beliefs or anything else, it's supposed to bind us together. It's supposed to show that we have a common interest because we essentially all want some of the same basic things. And so that's really what this song is speaking to. And the fact that it has the, the patriotism and the sacrifice of people that have fought to keep us free in it, that is something else that just continues to contribute to it being so American. Number five. Number five on this list is American Heart by John David Kahn. And if this were a list of the most patriotic songs, I think this one would have to be number one because it is arguably the most patriotic song I've ever heard. It's talking about just being in love with the symbols of this country. It's being in love with what this country stands for. It talks about raising the flag and I've got stars in my eyes. I'm in love with her and I don't apologize for that. Number four. The 8th of November by Big and Rich. If you have not heard this song, sadly you are missing out. This is one of the best songs ever written, in my opinion. I think it's one of the most American, obviously, because it's on this list. But it's just such a fantastic song. The music in it is really good. If you listen to the intro by Chris Christopherson that tells the backstory of how the song was written because the guy in the story is a friend of Big Kenny, one of the two guys for Big and Rich. It just add such a layer of depth. And the message of the song is 
freedom requires sacrifice. Freedom is not free. And there are a lot of people that have given an awful lot to be able to have this freedom. And so because of that, it gives you an appreciation for America, what it stands for, the people that have given an awful lot to that. And, and it talk, it's a very tragic song. It, it's not pretty. It's not feel good. A lot of these songs that we've talked about have been feel good. They're very ho hopeful. This one's really not. It's talking about the very real sacrifices men and women have had to make for centuries now to be able to make sure that we are able to stay free. And so it's just a great song that speaks to the sacrifices that they make and helps us to really appreciate our freedom. Number three. Number three on this list, It's America by Rodney Atkins. And I think the reason that this song is one of the most American ones is it, it talks about a lot of symbols that are important to American life, kids selling lemonade and a high school prom and uh, being able to, to ride out in a Chevy, that kind of thing, an American-made car. But ultimately, I think the message and, and the reason this is so clear, close to the top is because it's the little things. It's peace. You know, we've talked about, in, in fact, the last thing on our list was about wartime and struggle and that kind of thing. And those things are all part of America, too. But this song talks about the things that those men and women were fighting for. Ultimately, what it gives a picture of is that it's the little things in America that make up American life. It's not these big, grandiose events. It's the little day-to-day -day things that people out all over the country do every single day. And because of that, Rodney Atkins just so perfectly captures that. The music in it is great. And it gives you, I think, what the song describes as a, a postcard perfect picture view of what it's like to be in America. Number two. Number two on this list is Only in America by Brooks and Dunn. Now, this song has a lot of the symbolism that we just talked about from our number three pick. It's a lot of those uh, just kind of an overview of what American life is like. But even more than that, what this song is about is opportunity. It's saying, look, you, you dream as big as you want to. You can do anything you want to. It talks about the, the guy and the girl that go to L.A. to try to make names for themselves and become celebrities. And then they meet each other and fall in love and decide, you know what? It's just as good to go back to Oklahoma in the middle of the country and, and live a quiet life of peace and, and grow up with a family. It talks about very early on there's a bus full of school kids. And one might wind up serving life without parole. One might wind up in the White House somehow. And that's the thing. You don't know. It's a land of opportunity. If you're willing to put in the work, if you're willing to try to actually make your dreams happen, you have the ability to do that here. Now, you, you got to put in the work. That's part of the deal. But ultimately, it says your fate is in your hands. That's what America is. It is the land of opportunity. And that's exactly what this song says and number one all right guys the number one most american modern song i think has got to be american pie by don mclean and granted it's like eight and a half freaking minutes long i love every minute of it but it, it's like eight and a half minutes long so you can understand why it does this better than the others it just has more time to work with but it puts up such a great image of what life in America is to be. And there's a lot of songs so far on this list that have done that too. This one does it the best. And the reason is because it incorporates life, 
culture, history, religion, all of that. It has sort of religious undertones and symbolism, and that's something that America has from its very onset. It talks about really big historic events. It talks about cultural phenomenons like the death of Buddy Holly, things like that. And so it's got a lot of symbolism. It's very deep. You can dig into it all day long. And that's kind of the way that America is too, that you can kind of appreciate it on a surface level, or you can dig really deep and see some of the dark side of it, but even appreciate the history even more there. And so American Pie by Don McLean, I think there's no question that this one winds up at the top of this list because it's not just a microcosm of American life like several of the other songs we talked about are. It also talks about our entire history, our religion, what life in America was like at the time this song was written. And so it's just a fantastic look into the American soul and the American heart. And because of that, I think that it absolutely earns the top spot. So that's my list. I hope you enjoyed it. You may disagree with some of my picks, and if you do, you think maybe there's something I missed or I got the order wrong, feel free to fire off in the comment section. We always appreciate any feedback. We're going to be back in just a second on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwood. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid on our big Independence Day special, this should come as no surprise, but it is going to be something dealing directly with Independence Day, the Declaration of Independence. So apparently the people that are in charge of caring for the actual declaration that this one back here is a replica of, the people that are in charge of that at the National Archives, they have a race task force. Yes, that is a thing now. The National Archives, which is responsible for preserving our documents, apparently has a race task force. I don't know why, but this is apparently a thing that the Biden administration is doing now. I, I, I don't really get it. But um, anyway, they are now asserting that the rotunda, which houses the Declaration of Independence, as well as the Constitution of the United States, you know, that, that big gallery, if you've ever been there, that's actually where I got this replica. If you've ever been to that big gallery, you can go in there and you can see that they have the rotunda where they actually house the the real Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And they're saying that the rotunda itself, I kid you not, is racist. This is from a news story that went over one of their reports from Fox News. You can see here, the National Archives Task Force on Racism claimed the in a little noticed report to the U.S. top librarian that the archives own rotunda which houses the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, is an example of, quote, structural racism, and that the Founding Fathers and other white historically impactful Americans are portrayed too positively. Yes, well, I'm sorry that the people that essentially codified into law the rights of all men being created equally, which brought about the most prosperous, economically powerful, and militarily powerful nation in the history of mankind, that they're, we're portraying that a little too positively. We'll back off on all of the positivity that came out of that. I mean, that's done more to liberate mankind and eliminate poverty the world over than any other nation in human history. But sure, let's not give them too much credit, guys. It's just absurd. 
And here's the thing. If they're being portrayed too positively, is the assertion that they're being portrayed incorrectly? Because if we're getting something in history wrong, then yes, we, we need to correct that. I, I mean, I love the founders, but the founders are human beings. They made mistakes. I've talked to you about some of their mistakes and some of the things I've disagreed with them about on the air before. I don't think that they're perfect. If there's something in the rotunda or in the National Archives that is portraying one of our founders wrong, then I want to fix that because I care more about the truth than I do about portraying them in a positive light. And the founders themselves probably would have said exactly the same thing. So my question here is, when you say that they're being portrayed too positively, why wouldn't you just say that they're being portrayed inaccurately if you believe an inaccuracy is taking place? See, here's the thing. They don't think it's inaccurate. They're not asserting that the history that is being taught there is wrong. They're asserting that, well, we shouldn't portray it too positively. It's because these people hate the founders. They hate American culture. They hate the, the good that America has done. And because of that, they don't want it painted in too positive a light, even if that positive light accurately depicts what happened. And that doesn't mean to say that the people at the National Archives or that history itself is infallible. I don't believe that it is. Sometimes we learn new things and have to correct things that we used to believe. That happens. But that's not even what they're asserting here. They're asserting that, oh, we're making the founders look too good. Okay, well, if they look good because of the things that they actually accomplished, like I said, creating the freest, most prosperous nation in all of human history and, and basically... Uh, eliminating hunger, eliminating thousands of diseases through the innovation of our medical system, being able to feed the entire world off of just 2% of our own population. Yeah, okay, if, if that's being portrayed positively in the wrong direction, if it's actually not correct, okay, let's correct it. But that's not what they're saying is happening here. They just don't like the founders, and they don't like the fact that they're being portrayed too positively in their opinion. And Here's the other thing that I want you to think about here. This is a display of their biggest accomplishment. I am not somebody that says, especially in the study of history, I mean, in any academic endeavor, but especially history, that we ought to paint something with rose-colored glasses or paint it as though it's perfect. But people that are coming to the National Archive are there to view the pinnacle of what was accomplished by our founders. Let me give you an analogy here. If I were to go through the Braves Museum, which by the way now has been spread out in Truist Park and it's really nice. I was there just a few weeks ago. My brother and sister took me to a Braves game for my birthday, which was freaking awesome. And uh, I have been to Truist Park two times before, so this is my third visit. But I, I mean, it's just so, it's so incredible every time I get to go. There's a big display there because they've kind of spread the museum all around the park, which is really neat. You can kind of walk through as you're observing the park. They have this one particular display for Hank Aaron, Alabama native. So Hank Aaron, he is the record holder, and I don't recognize Barry Bonds because he was roided up. He is the all-time home run king, and his record for home runs is 755. Well, at one part in this museum, there is a giant display that has baseball bats arranged to create a giant number 755. And next to this display, they also have a giant bronze statue of Hank Aaron. Why is that there? To celebrate the fact that he hit the most home runs of anybody else. That's what it's there for. We would not expect to walk into this uh, exhibit 
and also see all of the times that he struck out and all of the times that he was caught watching and, you know, just let a, a pitch go by him, even though it was in the strike zone or every time he made a defensive error, we, we wouldn't expect to see that in that display. Why? Because it's not the purpose of the display. Again, I don't have a problem with portraying some of the shortcomings of our founders, and they did have some. Thomas Jefferson, for example, died almost $2 million in debt. Like that's, that's a legitimate thing to point out that he wasn't that great at. That's just one example out of many. But do we really have to have, okay, this is a long list of all the things that the founders sucked at. Like that's not the point of going in to see the Declaration and the Constitution. You're there to see the things that they accomplished. And in the same way, I don't have a problem with portraying real history alongside some of the accomplishments of the Founding Fathers that also talks about some of the things they didn't do so great on. But that's not really the point of the rotunda that displays the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And so I'm, I'm at a loss to figure out why they think that it's appropriate to portray that there. I mean, of course it portrays them very positively, but that's because what they accomplished is indeed positive. That's what it's talking about here. And unfortunately, this insanity continues on in this same report. If you look here, some examples of, quote, structural racism were provided in the summary of the report, including, quote, legacy descriptions that use racial slurs and harmful language to describe the BIPOC, that's uh, Black and Indigenous people of color, by the way, for those of you who don't speak insanity, uh, communities which includes actual racial slurs along time ter alongside terms such as elderly, handicapped, and illegal alien. All right, so there's one really obvious, bizarre contradiction here. Their problem with it is some of the history contained within this contains actual racial slurs and things that are inappropriate and offensive. I thought you just said the problem with the display is that it portrays the founders too positively. So follow my logic on this. They want to remove the things that people in the modern vernacular might find offensive. I don't know why you would find the word elderly offensive, but apparently they say that that is the case. They want to remove that, but they also say that the founders are portrayed too positively. Well, wouldn't the offensive things that the founders said, wouldn't that be something that doesn't portray them as positively? So your problem is the founders are being portrayed too positively in your opinion, but at the same time, the things that they said that are offensive, we should take those out. Well, but, but that would be the antidote to portraying them too positively. <laughs> that would be the answer, is to show the things that they believe that maybe people won't agree with, or, or maybe the things that uh, they might have gotten incorrect. It's so stupid how they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're trying to simultaneously say, well, we're portraying them in such a positive light. Also, they said a bunch of uh, bad racist things that we need to take out of there. Okay, well, <laughs> wouldn't that be the way to show, hey, the founders weren't perfect? <laughs> just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but I don't, based on that standard, if, if, the, uh, if you'll look back at it real quick, if the standard that we're going with here is that uh, some of the things that are offensive are elderly, which people get old, that's a thing. That's not, not a discrimination thing. Handicapped, which there are people that legitimately don't have all their body parts or you know have some kind of mental instability or something. An illegal alien. If that's the things that they're counting as offensive and illegal alien, which is just a legal status, 
if that's what they count as offensive, then you can kind of see why this isn't actually a contradiction because these are things that are not offensive. These are things that are not a problem. They're just accurate. If, if you're an old person, if you're 85 years old, you're elderly. I'm sorry. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. I'll get there someday too. There, there will be a day when I'm elderly and I'll be fine with being called that. Uh, I, I don't understand the rationale. And my point is, if that's what they're saying passes as offensive, then the things they're talking about are probably actually not offensive. They're just wanting to have an excuse to remove history because they don't like the founders and don't like the history. And so they're going to remove as much of it as possible. So that's where we find ourselves now. And, and there's more to this report. If you look here, the report also called for, quote, trigger warnings to be put in place with historical content to, quote, forewarn audiences of content that may cause intense, <laughs> I can't even get through it, intense psychological, uh, physiological and psychological symptoms. <laughs> Providing an advisory notice to users gives an opportunity to mitigate harm and contextualize records, the, re the report reads. It creates a space to share with the public our ultimate goals for the reparative description, demonstrate our commitment to the processes, and address any barriers that we might face in achieving these goals uh, and the scope of the catalog and the ever-evolving knowledge we gain regarding what is harmful. So, yeah, apparently... Reading the word elderly causes intense physiological and psychological reactions, which I just read it in your report. So is the report causing physiological and psychological damage? Ah, ah, what you going to do now, Woke Brigade? Anyway, <laughs> this, is the, this is the level of insanity that we're dealing with here. These are, these are the people that are in charge of preserving our national documents. Start panicking, America. <laughs> The idea that if you're reading the word elderly or illegal alien, and this causes you some kind of deep psychological trauma, first of all, I, I think it's easy to see why AOC thinks that hiding under her desk for 10 minutes, uh, 15 minutes, something like that is, is the equivalent to war and PTSD because of the way these people think and talk. Like the slightest little thing that might bother you a little bit all of a sudden makes you you know, exactly the same as somebody who served in wartime, according to these people. And so the fact that this is the kind of ridiculousness spewing forth from their orifices is, is really not <laughs> something that should be surprising to all of us. But it is sort of indicative of the idea that they really do think speech is violence. They think that speech can do harm. And that's the reason that they justify free speech not being a thing. They, they think that you have to be protected from words. Might I suggest that if you read the word illegal alien and that sends you into some kind of psychological trauma, maybe you're the one with the psychological issues, that maybe society shouldn't change to cater to you. Maybe you need to get your own stuff together. Because I tend to think that that's what's going on here. If you're somebody that is that sensitive to just reading a word can send you into some kind of post-traumatic stress, maybe you're the one that needs to get your own life in order as opposed to trying to control everyone else's. But that's just me. That's just Caleb. Anyway, uh, I do find it funny that they're basically admitting at the end of that, because if you'll, if you'll look back at the end of this particular one, you'll see here that they say the ever-evolving knowledge we gain regarding what is harmful. Um, here's the thing. 
You notice how when they say it's ever evolving, it only evolves in one direction. It only becomes more and more woke as time goes on to now where we're including completely benign words like elderly and illegal immigrant. That basically, if we keep evolving to the point to where we're continually, continually daily adding words to the list of things that are inappropriate to say, we're just going to get to the point where we can't use words. And that's the ultimate goal. These people hate free speech. They hate expression. They hate anything that disagrees with their worldview. Therefore, they want you to not be able to speak. And they want nobody that disagrees with them to be able to be seen in the National Archives building. That's ultimately what this is about. They don't like speech. They don't like people disagreeing with them. Therefore, they want to remove everything. And they do that under the umbrella of saying, well, it's harmful and it does violence. It's not violence. It's speech. Speech is not violence. Here's the thing that they don't understand about history. History is not there to be liked. History is not there to give you a warm and fuzzy feeling. History is there to be understood and learned from. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And to be honest, you usually learn a lot more from the bad history than you do from the good history. I think you can see by my set here that I have a great deal of respect for both the Declaration of Independence and patriotism. I think that that's pretty self-evident here. But that doesn't mean that I ignore the negative parts of history, and that doesn't mean that I can't learn from both of them. I learned from the great things America has done, you know, the, the moon landing and uh, completely renovating and industrializing the world, the things we did in World War II. And I learned from the really crappy things America has done, the internment of Japanese American slavery. I, I probably learned more from that stuff, to be honest. But the point is, history's not there for me to like it. It's kind of like the Bible. I've told Christians over and over again, sometimes from the pulpit, if you're reading the Bible and the Bible just all throughout gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling, you're reading the wrong Bible. Or you're reading the Bible incorrectly. Maybe you've got the right Bible, but you're not understanding it. These things are supposed to make us uncomfortable because that's how we grow. And the idea that they're supposed to protect everybody, they don't really care about that. What it's really doing is they're, they're doing it under the guise of protection. And what they really mean is, we only need stuff in there that promotes our pol political agenda and worldview. That's what they actually mean by that. But they're doing it under the guise of protection, saying these things actually bring harm to people. It actually does physiological and psychological damage to them. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. You just don't like free speech. And that's what it all boils down to. Keep it in there. If there are actual racial slurs in there uttered by the founders, you know what? I want it in there. Because as much as I love the founders, I want their flaws too. Nobody should be portrayed as perfect unless it's Jesus Christ. And that's only because he actually was perfect. In that case, portraying him as perfect and too positively is portraying him correctly. So that I'm fine with. And then this is the craziest part of it. I mean, I know we, we've covered a lot of crazy so far, but believe me, it actually gets stranger. Here's the last part of that report. The task force suggests ways to, quote, reimagine the rotunda, including staging, and I quote, dance or performance art in the space that invites dialogue about ways that the United States has mythologized the founding era. So apparently the problem is we've mythologized the founding era and painted it in a too positive light, and the way to fix that is interpretive dance, I guess. Man, th these people, like, it must be a profound privilege to have so little to do in your life, to have so few concerns about the things that are actually going on in the world that 
you think that they can be solved by interpretive dance in the archives building. I mean, but when but when you look past the insanity and the ridiculousness of it is, what does this actually mean? They want people coming to the National Archives to pay attention to literally anything other than what is contained in this document right here. That's what they want. They don't like that this document asserts that everybody's equal, that everyone is created by a creator who loves them and grants them inalienable rights that cannot be taken away from them by government, no matter how much Joe Biden may want to limit the amount of rounds you can have. That's not something he's supposed to be allowed to do. And this document is the basis of that. And they don't like these ideas, and so they are willing to do literally anything, no matter how insane or ridiculous it is, to get people to not pay attention to what's written in this. It's actually the same thing that a lot of megachurches, and I'm using the word churches loosely here, a lot of these very modern megachurches are doing with the Bible. They might put the Bible up in a, a rotunda somewhere. They might have it on display. But at the end of the day, you're really just there to see the super charismatic preacher and to see the lights and the fog and the rock band playing. And then hear, you know, a 20 minute feel good. I hesitate to even call it a sermon, more like a speech about how good you are and how much God loves you and how if you just listen to me, you're going to be blessed with all this economic prosperity. And you just you just do what feels right to you. It's the same kind of thing. Just like those churches don't really like the Bible and want you to not pay attention to it and not actually change your life because of it, because then that holds them accountable. The people that are in charge of the National Archives now, they don't want you to read this, because if you read this and you actually take it to heart and believe it, you're going to believe basically the exact opposite of everything they believe. And so they're willing to do anything in that rotunda to try to distract you from actually reading the thing that you're actually supposed to read when you come there. And it's the same thing that these megachurches do. Look, history is what it is. Good, bad, ugly, everything. It's there not to be appreciated, not to be cast down or looked down upon either. It's just there because it's there. It is what it is. These things are the way they are. Don't blame me. And so instead of trying to romanticize it or trying to act like everything that happened in the past is the worst thing ever and we need to move away from it, how about we just do what we're actually supposed to do with history? learn it and learn from it. In other words, allow it to teach us and instruct us on how to live our lives in the future and improve the future and not make the same mistakes that we did in the past. How about we just do that with history? Because that seems to be the best option here. But ultimately what this boils down to is they hate this. They're trying to distract you from it because they hate what the founders stood for. Inborn human rights that come directly from a creator and that, that makes us all equal. They detest that message. And that's the reason they don't want you reading this. They'd rather you watch some stupid interpretive dance they put together when you come into the building that houses this document right here. All right. Now, our second daily dose of stupid, because we are going to do a double dose today, and it kind of relates to the same thing, more about patriotism than the document itself. The Olympic hammer throwing competition ended in an interesting way the other day because Gwen Berry, who came in third place, in the hammer throwing contest. By the way, they call it hammer throwing. I don't like the fact that they call it hammer throwing because it's really like a ball and chain kind of thing. I didn't even know this was a sport. I'm just going to be completely honest. I'd never heard of it before. Apparently it's one of those like obscure track and field sports. Uh, but 
I really would have rather just them thrown like framing hammers at a target and try to hit it as close as possible, kind of like axe throwing. See, that's a much cooler sport. And I think that we should sue hammer throwing for false advertisement. <laughs> but no, there, there really is a, a sport called hammer throwing and it's in the women's division. And uh, she got very angry when the national anthem was played. Apparently she's done this before. Her name's Gwen Berry. She placed third in this American track and field trials. And when the, uh, when the anthem uh, when the anthem started playing, she turned away from the flag and you know put on her little pouty face. And so you can see that in this picture right here. This is courtesy of NPR. So yeah, you can see her. There she is on her third place stand, looking all dejected and sourpuss, and has some kind of weird black makeup thing going on with her lips. I don't understand what that's about. But regardless, it's you know really more of an ad hominem attack. It's not really substantive. But yeah, there she is, just kind of like angry and holding her flowers down and being a sourpuss about all this thing. So obviously not somebody that is real fond of the anthem here. But what was, it's absurd that somebody that wants to be on the American team acts this way when the national anthem is played. But what was even more absurd is her reaction to it. You can see that in this article from the Associated Press. She says, quote, I feel like it was a setup and they did it on purpose, Barry said at the timing of the anthem. Right. You're at the American track and field trials to be on Team USA and you think that they played the song specifically just to tick you off. I'm sure that's what was happening here. I mean, it's it's so stupid. That would be like being at Disney World and if you don't like Mickey Mouse, it's like, I'm sure that they had Mickey come up and wave at me just because I can't stay. That is a person that is living in a me-centric universe. Because if you were to apply just a couple of principles of basic logic, you would ask yourself, which is the more likely explanation? The fact that the American track and field trials that you're trying out for plays the national anthem a lot because that's kind of their thing, their Team USA or that they saw that you were on the podium at the time and they specifically, because they were targeting you, played the national anthem just to tick you off. Isn't it more likely that Disney World just happened to have Mickey Mouse roaming around because, you know, they're freaking Disney World? And isn't it more likely that the United States track and field trials just played it because that's a thing that they kind of do on a regular basis because, you know, they're the American team? So it's just so silly, but she has such a her-centric view of the universe that she genuinely believes that if this was done, it was done specifically to target her and to tick her off, and they were doing it just to mess with her. Unfortunately, you know, for her, there's not a bit of truth to this, because if you look elsewhere in the same report by the Associated Press, U.S. track and field spokeswoman woman Susan Hazard said, quote, the national anthem was scheduled to play at 5.20 p.m. today. We didn't wait until the athletes were on the podium for the hammer throw awards. The national anthem played is played every day according to a previously published schedule. On Saturday, the music started at 525. So this was something that was already scheduled. They had it in the schedule and they were going and they played it. They they weren't waiting for her to get to, <laughs> to this. It's just so stupid. This woman literally believes that everyone in the universe was just waiting for her to stand on the podium so they could play the American 
national anthem and, and stick it in her face. And that's just, this is, this is not a serious person. But here's the thing. That is the basic tenet of wokeism, isn't it? That if you are ever offended in any way, you must be a victim. If that was the case, it's because you were victimized and there was somebody that has it out for you that specifically wanted to mess with you, especially if you're black. I mean, this is the same thing that we saw with Bubba Wallace, right? That there's a noose hanging up in his garage. And even after presented with the evidence and even after they were like, uh, yeah, we did an investigation and that was put up in several different garage lots. It's, it's really just a pull down for the garage doors. Oh, and by the way, they put it up like a year ago, way before they even knew that you were going to be in that stall. And then he goes up, despite knowing all of this, to the podium and says, no, no, it was a straight up noose. It was a noose. No, there were not people specifically going out of their way to target you. You're not a victim. It was a unfortunate happenstance in Bubba Wallace's case, even though nobody, you know, would have thought of it as a noose if, if one of his managers hadn't gone to the garage and filled his head with this nonsense. And it's the same thing with Gwen Berry. The universe doesn't revolve around you. They didn't do this specifically to get at you for any reason. It's just the way that it happened to shake out that the anthem was already scheduled at this point and it played while you happened to be on the podium. But let's go ahead and look at the next part of this article uh, because this is where she kind of asserts her whole premise and, and what she's trying to stand up for, I guess, in her mind. So here she says, My purpose and my mission is bigger than sports, Barry said. I'm here to represent those who died due to systematic racism. That's the important part. That's why I'm going. That's why I'm here today. So we'll just temporarily ignore the insanity of the idea that people are dying because of systematic racism today. I've done multiple, multiple shows on how this is a convenient lie that is pro pro uh, propagated by the left, how there's no truth to it, how, for example, if, you know, I'll just give one here. Um, if you're a white person, you're actually significantly more likely to be killed by a police officer than a black person. If you look at the proportionality at the rate that they uh, th th they commit crimes, you're actually about the same amount of likelihood as a black person uh, being killed by a police officer in that scenario. Or how the fact that there were only four unarmed black people in the entire country out of you know 327 million that died at the hands of police officers last year. So, I mean, we could go into all of that, but let's just for a second look into this uh, claim that she makes a little bit earlier, which is this is her purpose. She's, she's not doing this because she's an athlete. She's not doing it for the sake of sports or to compete. She's doing it because of activism. Okay, if you want to be an activist, just go be an activist. It's real simple. I'm not saying that you can't have political beliefs, and I'm not even saying you can't be an activist in your off time if you want to be an athlete. I think you're being an activism, you're being in activism for the wrong reasons. I think you're on the wrong side of activism. I think you should be an activist for other ideas, obviously, but whether I agree with you or not is really immaterial. If you want to be an activist, just do that on your own time. That's all we're saying. You know, I'm a pretty politically active person. You know where I don't really act as a political activist at all of my other jobs. You know, when I'm working for Fountain University, managing the dorms, that doesn't have anything to do with my politics. And I don't use that as a venue to further my political desires. 
And so this is the same thing that we're talking about here. If you want to be an activist, either go off and be a professional activist and quit the sports thing, or you also have the option, because this is a free country, do your activism when you're not acting as an athlete, as a representative for the United States of America. When you look at great guys, and we were just talking actually about one of them, using him as an example, guys like Willie Mays, Jackie Robinson, or the one that we just used, Hank Aaron, these guys did affect some political change, and they did change the hearts and minds of people on things regarding race. But they didn't do it by being activists while they were on the field. In fact, they avoided that kind of stuff. They were just like, I want to be a good ball player. And, I, I want, and that, in and of itself, helped change people's minds about the role that Black Americans played and, and their ability to be on equal footing with white people and so on and so forth. That fundamentally altered the way people thought about it, not because they were activists, but because they did the opposite. They were just regular Americans trying to do the best that they could to do their job, just like everybody else. And that is what had an effect on people. They actually tried to stay away from the activism and did a lot more for sort of facilitating political change than this chick's ever going to. And the funny thing about all of this is this is just an absurd political stunt. It's just like Colin Kaepernick. Think about this. This lady, Gwen Berry, came in third, not for the Olympics, for the qualification for the U.S. team in the hammer-throwing contest. It's not exactly like, you know, track and field or gymnastics or one of the other really popular Olympic sports. This is a very specific, very obscure Olympic sport. This is the qualification round. And she came in third in that. Now, I'm sure that, you know, I couldn't do that. But my point is, do you know the names of the women that came in first and second? No, you don't. Because the only reason anybody knows who she is is because of this incident. See, she realized that she could get way more publicity being an activist than she could being an athlete because she's not good enough to compete on that stage. Now, maybe, you know, between now and then she trains and wins a gold medal in the Olympics. Okay, great. You're, it's still hammer throwing, but, you know, it's something. It's still an accomplishment. But my point in all of that is this is nothing but a publicity stunt. She's doing it to get attention in the same way that Colin Kaepernick was a mediocre backup NFL quarterback that had the job, you know, about a season before he started his activism, uh, had his job taken from him by another mediocre backup quarterback. I mean, the guy just wasn't putting up good numbers. And the same thing is true here. They can't make it as like, you know, you're not, you're never going to be, at least it seems from her level, you're never going to be a, a Carrie Shrug or a Michael Phelps or somebody like that. And so the only way that you can actually get into the limelight and get some publicity is if you do something dumb and, and ridiculous like this to make headlines. And that's exactly what Colin Kaepernick did. It's exactly what she's doing right now. But what is unfortunate about this is that the White House is now defending this insanity. This is Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki. And Gwen Barry, who hopes to represent the United States as an Olympian on the hammer throwing uh, events, won a bronze medal at the trials, and then she turned her back on the flag while the anthem played. Does President Biden think that is appropriate behavior for someone who hopes to represent Team USA? Well, uh, Peter, I, I haven't spoken to the president specifically about this, uh, but I know he's incredibly proud 
to be an American uh, and has great respect for the anthem and all that it represents, especially for our, our men and women serving in uniform all around the world. He would also say, of course, that part of that pride in our country means recognizing there are moments where we are, as a country haven't lived up to our highest ideals. And it means respecting the right of people granted to them in the Constitution to peacefully protest. Do you notice in all of that, that Jin Psaki has this annoying habit of completely not answering the question that she was asked? And I know a lot of press secretaries do this. Kaylee McEnany did this from time to time. But it does annoy me that he asked a very specific question there. Does President Biden feel that this is appropriate for somebody that is seeking a spot on the U.S. team? And she was like, well, I haven't spoken to the president personally on this. And that's fair. You know, maybe she hasn't. I, I tend to believe her. I have no reason not to believe her when she says that. But then her follow-up to that is, well, he believes in the right to protest. Okay, but that's not what the question was. The question is, should a person on the American team behave this way? Not does she have a right to do it, because she does. This is a free country. Nobody is saying, as, or at least nobody serious that I'm aware of is saying, well, she ought to be arrested for that. No, not saying that. We're not saying she should be persecuted. We're just saying, is this the appropriate response? Is this a correct moral decision for somebody that is supposed to be representing the United States going to the Olympic Games? And Jin Psaki completely sidesteps that and ignores the actual question to say, well, she has a right to protest. Okay, but nobody's asking that question. Of course she has a right to protest. Answer the question. But anyway, here's the thing. You can't be on Team USA, in my opinion. I think that this is grounds for getting kicked off of that team. Not because you're doing something illegal just because you're supposed to be representing the United States. And if you can't do that and do it proudly, you don't need to be here. And I'm not saying that vindictively again. Winberry can go off and be a political activist professionally if she wants to. That's fine. But this is a really, really dumb way to do it. And you don't disrespect America when you're on Team America. That would be like, in, you know, I'm an Auburn grad. That would be like somebody goes to Auburn, tours the campus, checks it out, gets to talk to the coaches and everything, signs a, a deal and, and winds up going to and committing to Auburn, becomes a student there, gets on the football team, all of this stuff. And then right after he uh, the first game, he protests War Eagle. Dude, you knew what you were getting into when you signed up for it. You are a representative of the university when you go onto a stage like that and play football for Auburn University. You can't do that and be simultaneously against the traditions of Auburn University. Like, this is, it's not as though you were coerced into this. You chose this. And you don't get to choose it and then crap all over it when you get there and expect, well, I don't see what I did wrong. I don't see why everybody's making a big deal about it. Because you're a representative of that organization. And when you're going to represent America at the Olympics, you should be respectful of your own country. You should be proud to be from your own country. If you don't, then you shouldn't be representing it. If you're like, well, America's, like, like she said in a different quote, uh, if you're saying that America disrespects black people, so I disrespected America, and, it, and America doesn't really hold up to what it's supposed to do, like Jen Psaki would say, Okay, well, if you believe that, don't represent America. If it's not worth representing, you shouldn't want to be on the team in the first place. Pick one or the other. But see, she wants to have her cake and eat it too. She wants to have this stage that she can compete on, 
but also I don't actually want to represent the thing that I'm supposed to be representing. You don't get to do that. You pick one or the other. And as dumb as what Colin Kaepernick did, at least Colin Kaepernick wasn't playing for Team USA in the NFL. He was playing for the San Francisco 49ers. And so, yeah, his activism was dumb and misguided, and I think that he's wrong for doing it. But at the same time, at least it wasn't something that was directly contradictory to the team that he was representing on that stage. That's exactly what's happening with Gwen Berry. So you have to make that decision. Either America is worth representing, it is worth carrying the flag proudly on your shoulder into that arena to represent the United States of America, or it's not. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Pick one or the other. All right, so let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. For our Chaplain's Report today, we're going to be taking a quick break from our series on 1 Samuel to talk about what it means to really be a nation under God. That was kind of the theme of our entire show this day, and, and since it is Independence Day, we're going to talk a little bit about that in our Chaplain's Report as well. The context you really need to understand to really grasp the full gravity of this verse is to understand that this was a psalm by King David. So Psalm 9 is a psalm of David. That's actually included in the, uh, the biblical tradition. So King David wrote this, and remember, David himself is a king, somebody that had some firsthand knowledge of a kingdom and how it's run and sort of the weight of the crown, that kind of thing. And so when you understand that and when you really comprehend how important that was to him and something that we he would have had intimate knowledge on, I think that this psalm makes even a little bit more impact. So let's go ahead and look at Psalm 9, verses 15 through 16, where it states, The nations have sunk down into the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid, in their own foot, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. A wicked one is ensnared in the work of his own hands. So what this verse is talking about is that God does judge nations, but he does it in kind of an indirect way. Because you'll notice that what the passage is talking about there is when God does judge a nation like Israel, like he's doing here, or rather I think this, this verse particularly is talking about God uh, judging other nations, nations that are enemies of Israel. He's saying they've sunk down into the pit which they've made, and the Lord has executed judgment and ensnared them in the work of his own hand. So in other words, what he's saying here is when countries go awry, when they neglect God, when they ignore his principles, when they oppress the poor or use their power in evil ways that God wouldn't approve of, what they're actually doing is falling prey to the fruit of their own labor. You see, when they do bad things, the laws of nature, the same laws of nature that are talked about right here in the Declaration of Independence, come back to bite you in the keister. Because nature is set up in such a way that if you make immoral decisions, you will get the reaction from that coming back upon you. And so 
while God definitely judges nations, I don't think it's always in the way that we think of. You know, we think of, oh, I do something wrong. God's going to send down a lightning bolt to strike me. Well, that's not usually how God punishes. I'm not saying he never does things like that because that happens sometimes in the Old Testament. But usually when something like that happens, it's because God has either taken away his hand of protection. In other words, taken away his protecting you from falling prey to the results of your own decisions or it's because he's the one that set those natural processes in place in the first place. He's the one that directed the laws of nature and created the order. And when you start messing with that order, the order starts messing back. It's not like God is taking an active role here. It's more like the systems that he put in place long ago are starting to react to the way that you have abused and neglected them. It's the same way like uh, if you just ignore the rule of gravity and you jump off a 50-story building, gravity doesn't really care that you ignored it or that you don't have any respect for it. You're going to wind up dying either way. Like Your faith or your belief in that has no bearing on what happens to you. And the same thing is happening here. He's saying these nations reject you. They have done all these evil things. Well, they're going to get theirs. And it's not even necessarily that God is directly going out of his way to create an event to punish them. It's that they're just going to, by merit of the things that they've done, face the consequences of their actions. It's kind of the Jeff Foxworthy's dad approach. There's an old Jeff Foxworthy routine in the, I think it's the Totally Committed album, where he said, my mom was always terrified. Jeff Foxworthy speaking here said, my mom was always terrified that something bad was going to happen to us. Like we used to have this giant heavy box TV on top of like a TV tray. And my dad's philosophy was always like, let him drop it on his head a few times. He'll learn. Yeah. You want to stick a penny in the light socket? There you go. Try that out. Boy, that hurt, didn't it? Don't do that again. <laughs> so, um, I mean, yeah, it's funny. But sometimes I think God kind of operates like that. Now, unlike the dad in Jeff Foxworthy's story, God does typically send prophets and warnings and that kind of thing to let them know, hey, the time to repent is now. You guys have done something and you've screwed up, so we got to reverse that. But what is being discussed and exemplified here in this psalm is that sometimes God takes the approach of, I'm not going out of my way to cause anything to hurt you. It's just the way that the laws of nature work, that they're going to come back and they're going to visit upon you the things that you have done to other people. Like when his dad in this example uh, says, you want to you stick a penny in a light socket? Go ahead, do it. See, see what happens. God's kind of playing that same role there. It's that they go ahead and they do it. It's not, the dad didn't like turn the outlet on. The dad didn't make electricity shock him. He just let the son kind of play around and experiment himself. And when he made bad decisions, bad things happened to him. And so that's the sort of punishment that is being described in this particular psalm. And, and we understand this as New Testament Christians better than most because we understand that the wages of all sin are death. That's Romans 6.23. And so uh, that is the the natural outcome of the decisions that you've made. But this is also true on the national level as well, that if nations as a people do really bad, terrible things, that they're going to create a really bad, terrible nation. And so we can see that play out over the events of all of human history, really. So let's go ahead and look at the next part of this passage in Psalm 9, 17 through 20. The wicked will return to Sheol. 
all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, Lord, do not let mankind prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, Lord. Let nations know that they are merely human. This is a verse that terrifies me, and I also think needs to be shouted from the rooftops, especially in America. You hear that this language, they will return to Sheol because they have forgotten God. What is the implication there? That they were, one, not always in Sheol, which, by the way, is like the netherworld, the place of departed spirits. You know, you, there's several different ways you could use to describe it. But anyway, it's basically the bad place. Not even necessarily hell, just like a, uh, the place of death is the best way to describe it. So if they are going to return to the realm of chaos, return to the, the realm of darkness and the place that is away from God's presence, and it's because they have forgotten God, what does that imply? That at one point they weren't there. That they, they may have been there at one point, but they came into the light and were in God's favor, and they were worshiping and remembering God at one point, but now they are returning to their old ways. As a Christian, these are themes that should seem very, you know, familiar to us because that's the Christian story, isn't it? That we are all dead and lost in our sins and we come to know God and have a relationship with him through his son and through the, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. But we have to also maintain that relationship. It's not that we're working towards our salvation. It's not that we're doing anything that God hasn't already done for us, but we do still have to maintain that relationship in order to re remain in God's good graces and in his favor. Because if we start doing things that are against his will, then we fall back into Sheol. We have forgotten God. And that's the same principle that David is describing here. It kind of reminds me of Ben Franklin's speech at the Constitutional Convention, where he says, if we believe that even a sparrow can't fall from heaven without him taking notice? Do we really believe that an empire can rise without him okaying it? Do we really believe that we can build this without God? If we build it without God, we build in vain. That's what Ben Franklin, one of the least religious founders, said. And that's the same thing. Nations will only be good if they recognize God, acknowledge him, and treat people the way God would want that government to treat their people. And so that's exactly what Ben Franklin is talking about here. So the question, I guess, then becomes, what were these nations doing? Well, in this verse, it talks about them neglecting the needs of those that are poor, neglecting the needy. And that doesn't mean the government. That means the individuals. You see, God does judge on the national scale when we're talking about judging in the affairs of man. He judges us as individuals on a personal level. But on this side of eternity, before the, the great judgment at the end, where we'll all be judged as individuals, he also judges nations as a whole on the national stage. There's a certain level of whether or not we follow him that comes to fruition, and, and the proof kind of comes in the pudding on this side of eternity. Because you'll notice even the bad and evil wicked nations that he specifically uses to punish other nations like Babylon, like Assyria, he then turns around and punishes those evil nations too. And so they wind up receiving the fruit that they bore. They may be powerful and influential for a little while, 
but God quickly reminds them who is human and who is not. And that's the last part of that psalm where he says, remind them that they are merely human. They are not God. See, this rot, this sort of moral decay, when it happens on a personal and individual level, it manifests itself on the national stage. When people aren't taking care of their neighbors, when they're not caring for the needy, the widows, the orphans, so on and so forth, then on the national stage, that starts to manifest itself. You start seeing the results of that. Because if they're neglecting people morally in that sense, they're probably neglecting a lot of their other morality, like, you know, being honest and uh, working really hard and that kind of thing. And when that stuff starts going awry, then nations start collapsing. And we've seen that throughout history as well. Every single nation in human history that fell believed themselves to be invulnerable. They believed that they couldn't fall. Egypt, Rome, Greece, Assyria, Babylon, the British Empire, all of them, they genuinely believed it can't happen here. And that's why when Americans say that, it scares me. Because I know for a fact, because I've studied history, all of those nations felt exactly the same way. And inevitably, most people don't even know those nations now. Most modern people know Britain, but it's not the empire it used to be. And most of them know Rome. But you get past that, the knowledge of those empires kind of goes by the wayside a lot of times. And so because of that, I think what David is calling for here is a, a big dose of humility for these nations to remember that they're just humans and God is God. And ultimately, they're going to be judged by him. And that's something that America could use a healthy dose of as well, because I it scares me when people say it can't happen here. Oh, yes, it absolutely can. It absolutely can. In fact, it will some days. America will cease to exist. Now, we might last until Judgment Day. We might not last another 24 hours. I don't know. But the point is, America absolutely can collapse. It, it is totally possible that we will just be one more blip on the historical radar. That could happen. I hope it doesn't. I'm going to fight to make sure it doesn't. But it is a reality that that very well could happen. And one day America will be destroyed one way or the other. It will cease to exist somehow. And God may judge us eternally on our own personal sins. And that's the most important judgment. But it's also important for us to remember, too, that since God is going to judge us nationally, we as a nation have to turn back to him. And I don't mean the government, because, again, I'm talking about on the individual level. When the individuals act immorally, the nation suffers. When individuals within the nation act in a moral way that brings glory to God's name, the nation prospers. That is the way that it has always worked. It's the way it works today. And so if we are going to, as America, continue to be the greatest nation in all of American history, there's only one way that we can do that. And that is to pray to God for forgiveness and to thank him for the things that he's done for us already and to remember that ultimately, just like David said, we're just human. We're just another human nation. And because of that, if we don't have God at the center of what we do, if we do not build on that foundation, like Ben Franklin said, in a way that glorifies God, then we are building in vain. We might as well be building the Tower of Babel and it's all going to come crashing down on our heads. America is a great country. But if we want to continue to be great, the only way we can do that is with God's help. Stay the course, friends. 
Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.